There it is. Here we go. Are we going? Top of the world, Tokyo time. Tokyo time. All right. I need a train. <laughs> I need a Tokyo train okay. sound. Like a bing bong, ding 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 ding. By the way, that is absolute. Uh, this sounds ridiculous, but absolutely one of my absolute favorite things about Tokyo is the sounds that the trains make. And they, they make these little melodies that are absolutely hypnotic. And uh, yeah, one time Cheryl was um, at a train station or somebody. What, who, who was it? Vinay? Was it you? who In the background, you had somebody had stolen a Japanese train sound. Yeah, Vinay. Yeah, his, his Android phone had some Japanese train sound in the background. <clears throat> anyway, it's, it sounds silly, but it's absolutely true. Just hearing the melodies in Tokyo from the trains and the crosswalks, it's like uh, they're meant, I think they're meant for, uh, you know, blind folks to be able to easier navigate across crosswalks and things like that. But um, some of the little tunes that they play are absolutely fantastic so welcome back and i hope everybody had a fantastic weekend yeah and how was your weekend cal nice nice i took uh yesterday uh mostly off right so just hanging out with the family the family's kind of coming together over the summer oh right uh, well let's, so, me- yeah, let's yeah, mention spending that. more time together so cal yeah. ha- believe it or not has a family and a wife and kids and the whole shebang and you probably even have a house and cars and all that stuff, right, Cal? So yeah, a couple. <laughs> and uh, because your wife is an educator and your kids are in school, but now they're on their, you know, the Europeans are getting into their summer break mode. And this is something Americans fundamentally don't know, which is in Europe people take off for the summer. And well, I think you know people have heard that, but in America we don't really have this because we only have about two weeks off per year. And so, but the the Swedes take off basically all of July and half of August, and they and that's where they're off right now. So they'll be back in about two weeks, and that's why we're missing a lot of our Swedish friends and our all of our Scandinavian friends. And then the the other parts of Europe go at other parts of the year. So the Italians go a little later in August. And then the Brits also, it's a little more August. And that's why Cal starting when? Wednesday or so? Wednesday yeah, Thursday? probably Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday. Let's, he, let's say Wednesday. Yeah. He's going to do his annual summer holiday because his wife's an educator and his kids are out of school. So they the whole point is to detach and you know reconnect with your family and nature. And it's an incredibly important thing that I highly recommend everybody do. But so Cal will uh, be with us in spirit, you know, starting Wednesday for about a, a few so weeks. So what, what I, what I, yeah, what we do, like this is something we've been doing for, I guess, ever since we moved back to the UK when I've had a more of a flexible, uh, after I left Best Buy and, and I became an investor, one of the things we do it in, uh, in uh, August, we just take, uh, we regroup as a family in August. When the kids were young, it's easy. We just... Uh, we have a place in Hilton Head. We just go on the beach and uh, and just hang out. And um, and so this year, like because the last six months I've been involved in Clubhouse, this has really engaged me. But I also want to have the discipline of doing that. So I'm just going to disengage from Clubhouse for most of August. Um, and, you know, my FOMO is going to be huge, huge. <laughs> so I'm going to be looking at the Twitter accounts as much as I can. And you'll and, go completely bald. I think, I think what you're worried about is you're going to lose all your hair. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. A. I'm gonna lose my hair. B. I'm just gonna have 
huge amount, huge amounts of FOMO. So I'm see, I'm gonna see if I can do that. So I'm gonna just get off Clubhouse like fully. And gotta, uh, we gotta figure out a way uh, to sneak you out the best headlines though somehow. Oh, I can see them on uh, on Twitter. You know, like I'll, I'll occasionally go on Twitter. Like getting yeah. like like how prisoners have to sneak in cigarettes into prison. We're gonna have to figure out how to get you the the absolute best. Uh, Insights you you have to promise to read one of my headlines at least once a week. That's what you have to do. That's that's the bottom line. I think once a week you can uh, pop in for like five minutes, and uh, we can just you know give you a condensed five minute uh, recap of the week or something. Yeah. So but anyway, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's uh, that's going to be. That's but just be to fun. lessen the, just just to lessen the blow, so people don't have Calpatel withdrawals, because that's a real symptom, by the way. That's a uh, real, nobody that's gets a, that. That's an actual... But you do lose your hair. You yes. do lose your hair if you don't go to uh, tech news. You do. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> so uh, good to see Moana's got his hand up here. And Moana's... So, um, let's... You, did, you didn't green bean uh, Cal yet. You I... said to tell you. Oh, it's on my end. It shows that he has Yeah, it. he has. Yeah, yeah, he's I'm green, green bean, 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 man. Oh, green man, bean. I didn't PT you on my back. Yeah, okay. Prompting. Thank you, hey, by Chris. the way, Tyler, yeah. I heard from Kyoko that uh, Phuket locked down, I mean, closed again. Is that so? No. No? No. Nope. Nope. Really? It could. I mean, they're, they're realizing that if, if Delta gets out of control, that they will need to. That's the only thing they've realized. But they're, believe you me, they're not going to do that because they've fought for a year to open it. And the island could likely die if they close it again. So they're not going to close it again. They, they would just as rather let you know, COVID go b- fully open and wild, then close it again. There's actually a lim- very limited number of people there at the moment. So I, I don't think it's a real issue. Okay. So, I mean, what they, they have several steps they can take in the interim before that they do something as drastic as closing the Phuket again. Although in a weird way, it would actually be, well, no, it'd be tragic for Phuket. Because, by the way, for people who don't know, Phuket is a Thai island. It's the ninth visited city on the planet. So people think of it as like some, you know, remote tourist destination, whatever. And it is. And so the beaches are fantastic and blah, 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 blah. The, but if you do a, you know, 2019 data search on the most visited cities on the planet, number one's Bangkok by quite a wide margin. And then you've got, I think it's Paris or London, Hong Kong's in there, um, Tokyo's in there. Phuket's number nine. And it's like, you know, uh, uh, alongside Beijing, it's like, it's really amazing how many people go into Phuket, in and out of Phuket. So, yeah, people don't realize how how many, um, how how much travel Thailand gets. It's, It's the travel hub of the world really is it so anyway and that's why when we talk about like which cities could do which things around um you know israel's renowned for its cybersecurity, and you know london's renowned for its fintech and etc 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 it's like thailand should be able to do hospitality um you know the the few you know smart hotels and all of that, it, it could be, it could really has an opportunity to do that because it's, you know, the hospitality capital of the world. So anyway, uh, the big, big headlines, shall we? Yes, we shall. And boy, let's jump into them. The first biggest headline 
on the interwebs at this very moment, Monday, August 2nd, is um, a Square, which is the big fintech company started by Jack Dorsey when he was kind of stepped out of Twitter and started off as a little device that you plug into your iPhone so you could swipe a credit card into your iPhone. And that made it incredibly simple for everybody to accept credit card payments into their phone as a business. How fantastic is that? And then they did it for tablets. And then um, they re- became a, an incredibly uh, cheap replacement of a of a point of sale system with, you know, like your cash register at your business. And then they've just been growing like a weed ever since. And... Um, and then they got their banking license, and now they're doing all. Oh my goodness, are they just g- going into everything? And they're acquiring a lot of startups, growing really fast. So they just made another acquisition, and this is and simultaneous to their quarter two report. So it's now it's their turn. If you've been following us regularly, you know we've been talking about all the quarterly reports that everyone's doing. So they've got their quarterly report, and they've got a new acquisition they say it's buying an australian based buy now pay later system wow who could have guessed that huh so just <laughs> it's it seems like every fintech on the planet and every everybody wants a buy now pay later system and now square's got theirs and they're rather than build it from scratch they're buying one out of australia called afterpay and they're they're paying 29 billion dollars for it holy cow that seems like a typo. That's a whole lot of money to buy. <laughs> I didn't realize Afterpay was that big. Uh, in an all-stock deal of Square Stock, paying a 30% premium on Afterpay's last closing. Ah, so it was publicly traded, and so they're paying 30% above. So anyone who was holding shares of Afterpay, which was, I'm kicking myself, I didn't have shares in that. Um, they got a 30% boost on their shares. A U.S. fintech company Square said on Monday it had agreed to purchase Australian buy now, pay later giant Afterpay. And Jack tweeted about it. Um, and then they, of course, mentioned it in their quarterly earnings call. But his tweet was very succinctly Afterpay plus Square exclamation point. So he, he seems personally excited about it. And then Square's quarter two revenue was just under $5 billion, which is up 143% from last year, which is Nice growth, and while its cash app services, uh, cash app had to buy a whole bunch of Bitcoin so to enable people to be able to transact in Bitcoin through the cash app, and because they bought a whole ton of Bitcoin before it r- spiked, you know, it went from ten thousand up to sixty thousand very very quickly, starting around November last year, and they got in before that, and that's a six x increase. That's six hundred percent. So. Um, they say the... Tyler, just to give the dimensions of these these numbers, right? Yeah. We throw these fintech numbers that we're throwing around, just so that people like the audience generally can put it around their heads. Um, if you're in the U.S., right, and you know you see consumer brands, so you go to a Best Buy, you do that. Best Buy's market cap right now is twenty eight billion dollars, right? The entire company. Um, if you're in the U.K. and you go to the number one like grocery you know, supermarket every day and you go to the shop and you hang out, you do stuff. And it's like, you know, Tesco, number one. I think if I look at it here, uh, 18 billion pounds, is that? uh, Yeah, probably about $23 billion, $24 billion, right? And this thing is being bought for $29 billion. Just the the scale of these these, uh, valuations 
are just amazing. Like, yeah, just, and, I, and uh, I've never heard of it. And it's, you know, partly because it's from Australia. And I'm wondering what other markets they were active in. Yeah, but just to give you an idea of how these buy now, pay later companies are going to be booming and everyone's going to have to have one. It's going to become an, an integral um, piece in every e-commerce. If you're an e uh, uh, selling stuff on the Internet and you don't offer buy now, pay later, you're going to be at a strategic disadvantage. And I think everyone's starting to realize that it's just going to be table stakes. So, uh, in fact, I was on a little tiny, tiny seller e-commerce site yesterday what was it oh it's this uh uh cold pool it's called plunge p-l-u-n-g-e and it's basically just like a one person jacuzzi slash ice bath and it's very incredibly stylish and it's got a uh bacteria killing you know infrared system and you know all the good bells and whistles but now because people are this whole hot you know uh ice bathing and hot water bouncing routine in the morning. There's a, I don't know if I wonder how many people are, have figured this out, but like a lot of the, the super uber wealthy, cool kid geek people are realizing the tremendous benefits of having your own ice bath and sauna and doing this, like bounce back and forth between the two, three or four times in the morning, kind of as your morning ritual. And it's as a replacement for coffee. And I've started doing this myself and it's um, quite fantastic. And you can, you can do it by just getting a couple of oversized trash cans and filling one of them with ice and water. And the other, you know, I would recommend you buy brand new ones for this purpose. And then filling the other one, like boil up a bunch of hot water. And, um, you know, you have these two and you just sit in one as long as you can bear to and then jump in the other one and sit as long as you can bear to. And you go back and forth a few times. And what that does is really amazing for your cardiovascular system because when you go into really hot water your your body tries to equilibrialize you know the temperature and so all of the blood goes out to your extremities to your fingertips and your toes right and then the the other when you jump into the cold water it does exactly the opposite it tries to preserve your organs so all of the blood from your extremities goes into your core to protect your organs and so what you're doing is you're basically uh doing an, an incredibly intensive cardiovascular workout just by bouncing back and forth between extremely hot and extremely cold water and um yeah and so people are are doing that and it has a really amazing effect i mean there's certainly a hormonal aspect to it as well and uh, anyway so this bath this plunge startup uh, i was looking at the website the you know it's just a tiny company and they had um um what's the american buy now pay later company that max levchin did uh, affirm so it's everywhere everyone's offering this and they're offering it because they do the math and they realize it's good for their business and it's just it's a no-brainer so you're seeing this global battle for these buy now pay laters because they're they're kind of geographically um, um particular and then they get acquired by the bigger fin fintechs in their regions so square buying this is not at all a surprise they were the only surprise is that they didn't build them, them build it themselves. However, it's it, it's not a trivial technology. These buy now pay later companies, and with Klarna is kind of the great example because they sort of pioneered it and popularized it, and everyone else is just copying along. And it's 
and Klarna has the most uh, advanced system, as every you know everybody in Scandinavia knows. It's incredibly advanced um, risk assessment because they're essentially issuing you a loan and the amount of data that they're able to process about you when you're checking out to buy, you know, a pair of running shoes to offer you that buy now, pay later. um, Just really, really uh, unbelievably advanced um, risk, real time risk assessment that goes on in that moment, which would take you a very long time to do. And uh, no, regardless of what business you were in. So even though Square is a fintech, uh, they, they didn't have that. And it would take them a long time to do it. And the year that it would take them to do it, they can't risk uh, investing that time that, of that year. They need that technology now. So that's why they're willing to overpay for it today, because they already have a huge user base to you know roll this out to you know immediately. So... Um, yeah, kudos to the team from Afterpay. Because, when, by the way, kudos to Australia because you've now got another um, super mega unicorn, a, a 30, 30 billion valuation. Yeah. Just a quick point. I've been studying some of the stats over here while you've been talking on Afterpay. Actually, Afterpay, sure, the headquarters are in Australia, but they're all over the place. Sure. Right? United States, United Kingdom, Europe, mm-hmm. whole bunch of other countries. And they've been expanding very rapidly into essentially becoming, taking over major brands all over the world. And the one thing that you notice on the start is prior to Twitter coming in, all of your major um, buy now, pay laters had been rising on account of the trend. But for some reason, this particular stock had been coming down. Um and, 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 and so, I mean, the price has gone up recently on account of the Twitter purchase, which is for $29 billion, but this hadn't been following that trend. So there's something, there's something else that's going on there. Well, but I'll leave it at that. They might not be the market leader in, men, in their, some of their key markets, like the U.S. Yeah. and U.K. And if they're – because this is the dynamic. I mean, it's a horse race, wherever, whatever market they go into. So, so they, just in one sentence, brother, yeah. I think what's happened is they have the Australian market. Yeah. But they didn't have the – and they had their step in the U.S. and right. Europe and their U.K. markets. Yep. And that's where the synergy comes in, where Square adds in. So he's gone in for a lower player yep. that he can synergize into the right. ecosystem. He's bought at a lower price, yep. and uh, and that's what he's basically doing. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense for him to buy the market leader. It may, he just wants the technology, right? And because he has the user base to roll it out to, right? So he does. why you would buy the market leader is you want the demographic. Uh, you want to... Uh, uh, he he's he is the biggest biggest fintech in terms of adoption. So he doesn't he doesn't necessarily want the market leader. He just wants a really strong tech and team. Aaron, yeah, Tyler. Just to add to it, I think it, it is yes, definitely the technology. But it's also I mean I worked with Afterpay. I worked with the guys in Australia when I was there in 2016 uh, at Mastercard. The other thing they did really really well is they worked a lot of bilateral agreements with the retailers. So just like Square had to do with a point of sale, these guys got right in with the retailers to drive their basket sizes and their their money forward. And they also engaged the likes of banks, um, Commonwealth Bank of Australia and MasterCard from a a further product deployment perspective, like cards, et cetera, and giving the retailers loyalty programs. So 
there's a lot more to Afterpay than meets the eye. And I also think they didn't clash, exactly to your point about demographic, they didn't clash with Square. There are other markets that Square now have, now have the agreements directly with all these retailers to go beyond what Afterpay had as just buy now, pay later, whilst also integrating that technology. So I think it's a real big win for Jack on this. Yep. Well, you, yeah, you can tell from his tweet, like he was obviously personally excited. And thank you for that additional insight, Aaron. And the next biggest story is from Reuters that uh, Zoom, the video uh, platform, agrees to pay $85 million and bolster its security practices to settle a class action lawsuit over alleged user privacy violations and Zoom bombing. And what is Zoom bombing is people jumping into your Zoom without you uh, welcoming them, usually with um, genitalia involved. And uh, Zoom video, yeah, agrees to pay $85 million for, to settle this class action suit, essentially. And it's, I don't, it's strange. I, we could get into the nuances of it, but essentially the Zoom architecture where people have the option to have closed rooms and they oftentimes don't, and they don't realize how easy it is to get into rooms um, that you leave open. And people can, you know, they use, you have an account. You know, those of you, I have a paid Zoom account, a pro account. And if you have a pro account, it's a static URL. And if you share that static URL to anybody, and especially if you ever put it publicly anywhere on the internet, I mean, forget it. Like, you're going to get Zoom bombers showing up eventually. It's kind of like asking for trouble. So, but the users don't want to do the proper hygiene of having closed rooms. They want to leave the rooms open because it makes it easier for the guests to jump in without having the, a password. I can understand that. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, so people well, get... Initially, they didn't even have that. Initially, the whole thing was open. Mm-hmm. You didn't even have the option of locker room, right? So yeah. anyone could just jump in. Yeah, but that's that's been addressed for a while. But it, it's unfortunate, you know. They they've got they're settling their suit for eighty five million, and um, and they agree to pay and bolster its security practice to settle a class. Yeah. So next big article is that Starlink, which is the global um, Wi Fi, not Wi, is it Wi Fi? Yeah, kind of is. It is Wi Fi. Global satellite-based Wi-Fi system by SpaceX has secured a license to build a satellite ground station on the Isle of Man aiming to provide blanket coverage across Great Britain. And this is quite interesting. So the next, uh, this is according to The Telegraph, Elon Musk's Starlink will seek to provide high-speed internet across Great Britain. The company is filing with the Isle of man's communication regulator to set up a ground station and install equipment on the island. This continues Starlink and SpaceX's effort to provide broadband for the whole world by September of this year. So by next month, their plan, their their ambition is to cover the planet in satellite-based Wi-Fi uh, within the next month. Anyone uh, with a hot take on that? That's no, not not Wi-Fi. It's internet, high-speed internet anywhere in the world, but. Wi-Fi is what you do in your house. It does have Wi-Fi. It does connect from the internet to a Wi-Fi router in your house. But uh, I think what they're doing it would not be described as Wi-Fi. But it's still amazing. That's for sure. No, the way you use it is through the Wi-Fi connector in your devices. That's my point. Correct. But con- yeah, that's 
anyway, I guess we could argue the semantics of it. They're they're providing the long distance connection from your house to the internet, and uh, and you do access it in your house via Wi-Fi. That's correct, but it, it itself is not Wi-Fi. It's satellite internet, but still still amazing stuff. And uh, they're going to need to put ground stations everywhere because it's until they get the uh, inter-satellite links going, uh, they're going to, uh, it's a low orbit satellite. So it doesn't see a lot of the world underneath it as it's passing by. So wherever you access it, there has to be a ground station within the field of the satellite to connect you to the internet. So they're going to have to do, uh, build those ground stations in a bunch of places. Eventually they're going to have inter-satellite links so that if you're in a remote place, uh, this link goes up to a satellite, which goes to another satellite that has a ground station below it. So they got a lot of deployment to work on, but it's still just an amazing system. Is anyone? I, I worked on this stuff, uh, you know, four yeah, years ago. Anyone able to comment on why they chose the Isle of Man rather than London, for example? That might be worth investigating. The political might, might very well be a tax reason. Of yeah, tax. Yeah, but is there also a potential defensibility, security reason, or something like that? It's remote. It's empty. It's probably well. It's uh, sorry. Go it's ahead. a bit of a disadvantage in terms of uh, latency. I mean, maybe there's by, probably by a, hair, there's but... probably a there's probably a transatlantic cable that comes up there. I don't I don't know. This cable. is a fact, but that would be my hunch. Yeah, that it's more they, they need the, they need really good backhaul to support the satellites. Backhaul is the uh, connection to the main internet. It'd be interesting to investigate if there's any kind actually of legal man has one of the one of the island man has a, one of the highest hubs it's just got a resilient uh, apparently a large network of uh, cabling going through them data centers one one reason i can think of is defensibility it makes it a little more difficult for a person who would have to invest a little more to go disrupt it this is this is what i'm getting to which is, well, although although if you get really serious about disrupting it, maybe it gets a little easier to disrupt it. Uh, if you're a, you, you see what I'm saying? Like um, at some point, Starlink, we're going to start seeing headlines like we already do around Myanmar where the government shuts down the internet. And when it comes to wanting to shut this stuff off, that's where the strategic placement of these base stations will be quite uh, worth investigating. Because then they'll go attack the this particular location, and so why wasn't it in London? Well, because you know. Anyway, I'm going to tweet a link to you, Tyler. Okay. So the next big headline at this very moment is uh, some K-pop stars are bypassing Twitter and Facebook to create platforms for fans, like uh, a company called Universe, which features AI-generated voice calls with the idols. And a lot of people are, this article is getting a whole lot of attention from The Verge, where it says that fandom has changed a lot um, <clears throat> in many, in the recent years. <clears throat> that um, technology fandom is changing parasocial relationships, is what this journalist is trying to coin this term. <laughs> and a largely one-sided relationship between a fan and a public figure they feel close to due to social media. And the companies behind some of the biggest acts in K-pop are pioneering a new way to monetize 
these kind of relationships between fans and their idols. They've developed an online platform to help K-pop fans feel as though they have a direct access to their idol favorites. That access, that access helps shape the way these fans interact with the idol as a form of friendship and how they engage with other fans <clears throat> before the rise of social media and before the rise of social media uh, a company and company run platforms most fans from korean artists basically were locked into a direct engagement through fan cafes a kind of digital fan club that offered that often required fans to prove their knowledge of a particular artist before gaining access to the artist initially hosted on platforms like social media networks these fan cafes allowed fans to connect with idols directly and they could become even more intimate when connected with the official paid fan club memberships. But uh, while the fan cafes for many idols are still up and running, there has been a shift away from fan cafes over the past two years, especially for English language fans. In their place, several companies are creating new social apps for specifically for artists, entirely bypassing third-party platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Three main platforms now stand out. NCSoft's Universe is used by a wide range of groups managed by companies outside of the big four of the Korean pop music and includes features like private messaging services, exclusive music, and mildly conversational AI-generated voice calls with idols. Uh, H-Hybe's Weverse is a home to mega groups like BTX or BTS and TXD and structured more like um, fan cafes. Fine. It's kind of more of a digital. Yeah. Uh, the, the Basically, these huge K-pop groups want to own their own fan cafes rather than having their fan cafes on Facebook, for example, as a fan club, as just a Facebook group. Uh, it says, finally, there's another one called SM's Listen, L-Y-S-N, which includes the truly innovative bubble app that has found a way to give K-pop groups all of the benefits of Twitter DMs without many of the problems. Um, SM is a K-pop producing powerhouse behind groups like TVQXQ and the cyberpunk girl group Aespa. Its platform Listen first launched in 2018 and has an interest-based fan community. It was a relative failure before the 2020 introduction of its bubble idol instant messaging service, which kicked profits into the stratosphere with the different versions of bubble. Fans can connect with their favorite idols through partially private messaging paid for on a subscription basis. The app is designed to look like one one on one chat window like uh, WeChat or WhatsApp. But the reality is more like a massive group chat with the idol dropping in messages for thousands of fans at once and seeing replies as they come in. And the reason this is something to make note of is because this part of the world and Korea most notably is really shaping um, is a few years ahead of what's happening in the U.S. and in Europe, for example, when it comes to culture uh, as it relates to music and film and TV and so just like we talk about social commerce and how social commerce started in China and it's all throughout Asia and two, three years later, it's finally now just arriving in America. This is the, the now you're seeing the more earlier stages of, an, of another wave starting in Asia that is not yet phenomenal in its growth, but it appears to be showing indications that this is going to be the next evolution 
of things, again, coming out of Asia, it'll get adopted, you know, and, and move across, you know, Southeast Asia, then it'll hit India, then it'll hit Europe and then America. And it looks like uh, it's worth paying attention, attention to now, because if you're a savvy American or European entrepreneur, watch this very closely, um, because that, this is now a second instance of a social trend starting in Asia or a tech, uh, a tech enabled social trend that will then find its way westward over time. So it's it's worth 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 watching if this indeed is the evolution of how fans of all type engage with their favorite bands and musicians and actors and celebrities and etc. And it seems to be one westernized example of this already would be Superphone and which is essentially an SMS number that um, fan, uh, uh, celebrities can put on their profiles and say, hey, just SMS me. Here's my phone number. And the fans SMS that phone number thinking they are, you know, SMSing that celebrity. In a sense, they are. In a sense, they're not. It's a, it's, it's a very clever, um, you know, incredibly powerful platform that has automated responses it has even, you know, kind of AIs built in to fake the beginnings of the conversation so that the fan feels like they're SMSing one on one. Holy shit with Tom Cruise. But in reality, it's an AI that, you know, has learned Tom Cruise's behaviors. And so that's um, kind of one splinter of, uh, of you know, a, a glimpse as to where this could all be going in the near future. But the idea to be able to monetize that. <clears throat> for celebrities is truly remarkable. Plus, through the SMS platform, of course, people can own their fans in a much more powerful way than they can through Facebook, you know, so that when they want to promote something, you know, hey, go, you know, here's the new trailer for my new upcoming movie, uh, you know, here's ticket sales or, you know, here's something I, you know, that is... Uh, contractually my the the company i'm doing business with wants all of my fans to know this well now i've got them all on sms which has the best open rate of any platform on the planet you know because they normally the time it takes them to open it and the the open rate you know this is the thing that marketers obsess about is what is the open rate of your email list when you send out an email what percentage of the people open it you know it's normally a very small percentage but in sms it's normally you know in the 90 90 plus percent and emails like in the sub 10 percent. So just to highlight the power of kind of these chat apps um, and having that direct relationship and having a tool to manage, you know, a million because your phone, your your even your WeChat app or your WhatsApp can't manage millions of you know fans. But these uh, new platforms are being created for those use cases and they're quite interesting. Chris, are you just applauding? Applauding. Okay, so next big article is a profile of Bored Ape Yacht Club, an NFT collection that sold for $2 million in April, spawned a collector community that has since seen $100 million in trading activity. And this, again, is another so tech-enabled social trend that this time is more starting in the West and is now heading East. And that's the nature of... Uh, of tech in 2021 is um, innovation can happen in any part of the world and then finds itself uh, going in other directions. And in this case, yeah, the 
the West is a little more uh, leading on the NFT front in Asia is, you know, now picking up on that trend as well. And in this case, they're highlighting, uh, this is from the New Yorker and Bored Ape is not, I guess we, the real powerful thing to mention here is the cyberpunks, which really pioneered and popularized this concept. And now Ashton Kutcher and Bored Apes in Stoner Kitties, which is Ashton Kutcher's one from last week, where he sold $100 million worth of his NFTs. And then these um, Bored Apes uh, are also a similar NFT. And they're all kind of taking uh, a page out of the book of the cyberpunks. And does anyone anyone in the audience have a cyberpunk uh, as their avatar? They're quite recognizable you'll they look like little alien heads we have somebody from time to time who jumps on stage ah there's one in the audience ida ida luang who i think's the third person in the audience under the friends of speakers or whatever and that's a and it's a digitally created um avatar and they made thousands of those and they're now they're trading for hundreds of thousands of dollars each if you actually own one of the limited edition and because they were the real pioneer in that space over time, that's likely to be the OG one that will continue to grow in, in popularity because every it's a reference point that everyone has to go back to now that these bored apes and um, and Astrid Kutcher's stoned cats are clearly inspired by the cyberpunks. Um, we'll see, you know, which ones will be valuable uh, as the kind of digital trading cards, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. My bet is on the cyberpunks will be uh, the ones that people will really have an affection for over time. But yeah, you're going to see these board yeah, apes. It's, and... it's, uh, for us, for us, is that your cyberpunk or is that you? You've changed it recently. Just trying to figure out. Oh, no, it's just you. You're good. <laughs> it's just me, man. <laughs> just you. <laughs> so the this article goes on about the popularity of the booming of NFTs and using board apes as the example to, um, you know, tell that story. But even, I'm sorry, I keep calling them cyberpunks. They're called crypto punks. But even this article can't not mention crypto punks where it says, um, uh, 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 that the creators of these, uh, uh, apes, board apes, were familiar with CryptoPunks, a batch of 10,000 pixelated figures, which became the blue chip art of the NFT market after the release um, by Larva Labs in 2017. And now CryptoPunks, which now can sell for as much as $200,000 a piece, weren't designed to become avatars, but some collectors, including Jay-Z, use them that way, flaunting one as your profile pick. Uh, was the ultimate symbol of digital cachet. It's like having a Harvard degree in the NFT space because uh, they're limited and it's known to be limited. And you can prove that you own it in, in some way if you have a link to the actual NFT transaction uh, on OpenSea or wherever they were transacted on. However, the like I was saying, the person in the audience, anyone can use any of the CryptoPunks as their avatar. We all could. There's there's no cost for that or anything like that. The question then becomes, how valuable is it then to actually have the link in your bio that shows that you're the actual owner of that GIF, essentially? <laughs> essentially, what you're buying is a little digital GIF. And 
So if anyone can use it, it's so easy to do digitally duplicate the GIF and use it as your anyone can do a CryptoPunk as their avatar. So what's the, val the, the value isn't being able into using it as your avatar. It's the link in your bio that shows you're the owner of that GIF. Uh, okay, I guess that's valuable. Um, so this 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 whole world is going to get very interesting once we get into um, all of this world. And somebody, against my better judgment, <laughs> someone named Wise Crow, without a proper photo, without an actual name, is raising their hand because they want to mention something about NFTs, no doubt. So what's what's on your mind, Wise Crow? Hi, Tyler. Thank you for uh, letting me speak. Um, I am collecting NFTs uh, since last year, and I bought 23 board apes in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you buy an NFT, that means you own that NFT. Yeah. If you yeah. upload a, a JPEG, it's just a JPEG. Right. If you, so, so the difference is, or you own the NFT, and then you, uh, you ha there's only one of it. Uh, they are unique or if you upload a jpeg it's not it's not your your nft right you, you so the, the, the jpeg so, yeah what just to clarify the actual image because it's a digital image it's it is perfectly duplicatable the bits the ones and zeros is perfectly duplicatable so i could have his the the, the 30 that you bought i can duplicate them perfectly pixel for pixel one one and zero bit for bit perfect duplication that digital allows that so what he actually owns the jpeg isn't important any everyone can own the jpeg that he feels he paid money for what he actually paid for is the right to say i own that and he has a, a link to a place on a on a blockchain with an, likely an ethereum blockchain that shows i'm the owner of this um jpeg but uh, yeah. good, it's like policing it, it, anyone it, from stopping using that JPEG. So you have cryptos on Ethereum. They are ERC-20 tokens. Right. And right. The, the, the NFTs are ERC-721s. It's essentially, it's a crypto, but uh, with, yeah, with, with a picture uh, on your crypto coin, let's say. Um, you could see it as a Bitcoin, the same. Only uh, I have to... Uh, put a lot of attention if you buy nfts uh, and you put a lot of money in it be careful because it's not easy to sell them okay i was lucky to buy board apes but i have also other nfts and it's not easy to sell them if you're not uh, you know do uh, good research right and the question is the people are going are debating and will continue to debate the value of digital tradables because essentially unlike tr trading cards like baseball cards or you know that that were so popularly traded or any non-digital tradable you can't perfectly replicate it so if you could perfectly replicate um you know very valuable tradables um what's the value of having the link that shows 
you know, the certificate of ownership or something when everyone else can have a perfect copy of it. It's kind of an interesting concept that people. Yes. Yes. So, so uh, an NFT has a link, but it's, it's, you can compare it like a crypto and the crypto is scarce, like board apes. There are only 10,000 of them. And they can go up in price very fast because the whole world is uh, looking at them to buy them at, at uh, you know, uh, the lowest price. Uh, although I must say there are also bots who are uh, bringing out offers to them. So that is also in create, creating hype on the market where bots are buying up uh, under the floor price. So let's say if, if a board ape is five Ethereum, the bot will offer four. And then uh, because there are too many buyers, more more than um, the supply, uh, then, yeah, price is going up. So here, here's the bigger issue, though, is you're not able to stop. For example, the, the person in the audience, Ida, who is using a crypto punk as her icon, um, she likely doesn't own that because there are 200,000 each to own one of those crypt original crypto punks. Although she might, I'm not, I'm not judging it, but let's assume that she doesn't own it. The, the quote unquote owner of it has no power to stop her or anybody from using it essentially. So that raises the question in the, when, when we start spending more time in AR and VR, which we have some good headlines about that, that further indicate we will be spending a significant portion of our time in those domains in the near future and you buy a pair of gucci shoes and gucci makes only you know a thousand pairs and people can prove that they digitally own them by some kind of link somewhere but anyone can duplicate those gucci shoes in ar and vr and the whole world could be wearing them is there any uh, way to well, stop uh, people from if there's no enforcement of the digital uh, what what uh, what's the word where people duplicate fake products? Uh, counterfeit. Counterfeit. If, yeah, because in the in the real world, if you could perfectly duplicate a Louis Vuitton handbag, perfectly, perfectly, uh, then what's the difference of the person who quote unquote has a certificate of ownership and the person who doesn't? Is it really that relevant? Because the real value of the of the object is to walk around with it and be the visual aesthetic of it. And in the digital domain, you're going to be able to walk around with the digital aesthetic of it without owning it like that person's doing in the audience where she has the digital aesthetic, aesthetic that she's a crypto punk as her avatar, but she doesn't own it. So what's what's the real value of own, quote unquote unquote owning it when there's no um, the real power value to is... stop other people from also displaying it? So Unless... the real value... Real value is that it's coded in the smart contract. It's it's uh, in this way. For example, the board apes they have a piece of land in the metaverse on Sandbox.io, and only if you have an original board ape, you can enter that piece of land, and there you can, uh, you know. Yeah, you're not directly answering my question because it's not convenient for you. It's it's. it's... I'm not talking about digital land. Please, if you want to. Uh, so if you if you have a JPEG, let's yeah. say you copy my NFT, Correct. you cannot you cannot enter the metaverse. So um, you just have a JPEG. You are not on the blockchain. You are not accessible ah. uh, worldwide, twenty four seven, by all crypto collectors of the world, which are a few hundred million now, um, and growing. Um, so 
Yeah, you, you you don't have access to the blockchain, and it's all about having access to the Ethereum network, where you can transact uh, store of value in your NFT to another twenty four seven. You own the private keys, so you you can be your own gallery and uh, transact uh, on the on the Ethereum blockchain with your art. And if somebody if somebody copies it, yeah, go try to sell a JPEG on the internet. You, you're fundamentally you can... not understanding the the conversation. I, so, I think, I think it's a very it's a very niche thing. Only those people who are involved in that blockchain probably think that there's a value in it. For those people outside, unless the owner of the original logo or whatever cyberpunk trademark that logo, if not, there's no value. Correct. There's no there's no ability to police it. So Tyler, here's here's a thought. I, I heard a great uh, example in one of the uh, conferences and the guy said, if you think about NFTs, it's like buying an original Rolex and everybody else has fake copy Rolexes. The real value of it is going to happen when there it's are events. Like, Vinay, it's not like that at all. It's like everyone no, else no, no, has no. the exact same molecular Rolex that you do, except you have yeah, a, yeah. A, a, you have a separate piece of paper in your wallet that says I'm the actual owner of this Rolex, but everyone else also has the exact same Rolex. So please exactly. Don't... Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I get so, what you're saying. But the value the... comes from when there's access to certain uh, spaces for only that original Rolex, the one that has this piece of paper. No, no, no. The, the role is there's not one uh, authentic Rolex. They're all exactly the same Rolex. You have a so, separate piece of paper in your wallet that says, I'm the owner of the Rolex. Everyone else has it. The entire world is wearing the exact same molecular, identical carbon copy Rolex. But I have a piece of paper that says, I'm the owner of it. And that's what you're able to trade. So so there is a, prob there is a problem with uh, policing the blockchains because... Uh, there is a non-censorship on the blockchain. Uh, it cannot be censored. If you if you uh, deploy a smart contract, somebody can copy it and uh, act like you. But it's non. There's a non-censorship. Again, and you're, this you're fundamentally misunderstanding the point. Is that the people who copy it are not interested in selling it? There's an aesthetic value to it that they now have access to. They can walk around I like think, she's doing. Think, the person with the crypto punk avatar in this audience is not in, trying to sell it. She just likes the aesthetic of it. And the owner of that uh, contract <clears throat> is not able to do anything to stop her from doing what she's doing. In the real world, with physical objects, first of all, there's a burden to making identical replications of it. And, and more importantly, there's laws in place to stop those people from doing it. In the digital if, space, both of those disappear very quickly. If I upload a picture of the Night Watch, uh, which is in uh, Amsterdam, in the Rijksmuseum, as, a, as my avatar, uh, is, is the police something going to do about it? I think no, not. No, because you're not, you're, you can't upload the actual physical fucking painting into here. You're, again, fundamentally misunderstanding the entire point. Tyler, um, PTR, and you'll see my limited edition. If, if, you, if you could bring the Night Watch from the Reeks Museum 
into Clubhouse, I'll pay you a billion dollars if you could physically bring that physical painting into the digital world. That would be truly remarkable. And as soon as you can do that, yes, they will come stop you. It's very hard to police the blockchain. That's period. my point. And that's why they're worth nothing <laughs> because they're digitally replicate, re replicatable at no cost, uh, endlessly. The, there's there's millions and millions i estimate the nft market is between two and five trillion right and, and your point your point that the the night watch can be digitally replicatable and is valueless is exactly the point they're valueless because they're digitally replicatable instantly it depends all about community if you would uh, deploy uh, an nft Uh, you're, and you are creating some kind of commercial uh, points around it, your community will buy that NFT. And if you make a limited supply, let's say 100 pieces, the price will go up because you have thousands of followers. This is how it works. But Tyler, can't you even extend your argument and say, hey, I can make a copy of it and I can create my own network and start selling it as if it's an NFT too. I mean, there's no limit to this replicating and then you act as if you created something on your own. Nobody is going to be able to sort of, if, every, if the whole world uses only one blockchain network, then whatever this other gentleman yeah. is saying might be the valid. The fundamental problem But, is they're confusing the concept of scarcity. The scarcity is in the, the, the certificate that says you own it. That's what's limited in supply and scarce. The, actual, the object is not scarce at all. And I'm even making one more point, which is you can have your own network and you can now use this replicated copy for which you didn't pay anything to now create another network where you make it appear like you are the owner of that thing, right? As long as... Oh, it's like different markets where the same, yeah, that same thing is being sold or whatever. Yeah, you could make, I see what you're saying. I, I'm not even so, getting into that point. That's a whole other point, so, yeah. So, Tyler, you gave yeah. the example of uh, Aston Kutcher deploying uh, the stoned uh, kitties or something. Yeah. Uh, his his following on the on the world is, is huge. So, he was sold out immediately because everybody knows Aston Kutcher. Paris Hilton, she sold uh, NFTs for uh, a million apiece. Why? Because she has mil millions of followers. If she wouldn't have these followers, she wouldn't have sold out so fast. This week, I bought an NFT of a 12-year-old girl. She uh, created the long neckies ladies that, that are uh, drawings of uh, uh, which are um, created by uh, artificial intelligence software with, with all kinds of rarities. So they throw in the, the drawings into the uh, software and they come out in all different versions. You know, you can all set it digitally with rarities and these rarities also, the collectors go after the rarities. The, the more rare uh, an NFT has in their details, the higher the price. So, for example, a bored ape with a crown and laser eyes, it can fetch uh, 100, 200, uh, let's say, uh, 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 Ethereum.
Tyler, it seems to me that you're going in circles with this one now. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I, I, I said I, against my better judgment, against someone hiding their name in their face. If, again, not uh, uh, it's more like just a an example for the class to follow why that's. A yeah, Mohan's right. Let's uh, let's uh... <laughs> <laughs> move on. Think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good so next big uh, by headline. The way, Tyler, Mahogany's Mahogany's uh, changed her. Uh, PTR profile okay. to uh, to an interesting yeah. one. It's, uh, yeah, one yeah, it's, it's, it's my limited edition NFT. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so um, the next big article we did Starlink and the, the Indian online insurance aggregator called Policy Bazaar files for an IPO, raising eight hundred and nine million, and says it may raise about a hundred million in its IPO, and. Again, online insurance aggregator. Mm, ah, yeah, insurance is going to be a huge, huge uh, disruptive space starting now and for the next few years. And as usual, the geeks and the, the data and the data scientists and the AIs are absolutely going to demolish that whole space. Uh, so just be mindful of that. And then the next article is from the New York Times. After a decade of online identities coming under increasing centralized control, online anonymity is starting to look like a threatened privilege than a right. And um, I'll t tweet this one out for you. And this fits very squarely under the I told you so category that we are in the very near future not going to be able to be anonymous as Wise Crow's uh, doing today <clears throat> because it just enables too much, uh, you know, buffoonery essentially so this new york times article says in early july when england's soccer team lost the european championship final to italy on its home turf the crushing defeat was followed by a torrent of racist abuse on sexual media directed at the team's black players the message is part of an ongoing pattern of social media bigotry were condemned by politicians platforms teammates and fans they were also blamed in part on a familiar figure the masked troll He's been popping up a lot lately, depending on who you are. He may be the source of all political disinformation, one of an army of bots, the leader of an online mob, a hacker or a scammer, and he has a mascot, the little guy in the hoodie on his keyboard, face obscured in the shadows except for a little smirk. In the popular imagination, this figure operating under the name of concealed or chosen is almost always up to no good. That could explain why people so often push for unmasking him. In England, the episode reviewed, uh, renewed calls for tech companies to enforce identity verification on their users. A petition in the British government demanded that it make verified ID a requirement for opening a social media account and has more than 688,000 signatures. We have rights to free speech and association, but as real people, not fake people, wrote Paul Mason, a columnist for the, the New Statesman. One optimistic assumption behind these ideas is that racism is so stigmatized, people wouldn't dare espouse such things under their own names. A curious read on politics, British or otherwise, circa 2021. It implies that to adopt a new identity is to become fake, but it's also pretty close to how things already work. After a decade in which online identity came under increasing centralized control in which various digital and offline identities were mingled and during which personal data became a hot global commodity, control over the one's identity is starting to look more like a threatened privilege than a right. To exist online is to be constantly asked to show yourself whose space is it. Online anonymity and pseudonymity have survived accusations 
of ruining the internet for as long as people have been logging in. They have been abused by bad actors. They are also widely misunderstood. And this is a very long article, um, but it essentially makes the point that uh, we're very soon going to shift into um, forced identity, as I've predicted multiple times over the multiple weeks now. And to recap, it was Vietnam was the first one that we noticed about three weeks ago, insisting that influencers, as they define as people with more than 10,000 followers, must be identified by their state ID. And then Australia, in the past week, uh, has joined um, the plans to embrace that. And now it seems the UK is in the process of starting that process. And this article from the New York Times is obviously a U.S. publication, and clearly people in the U.S. are starting to wake up to... I I have to imagine there are politicians in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, writing bills as we speak around um, enforcing digital identity verification systems, which uh, Apple seems to be um, plays right into this in a very interesting way because there was a headline last week that the next version of Apple's operating system on, for the phone, which is called iOS, iOS 15, which we will download all next month, uh, will enable or rather enforce you to uh, do a biometric scan of your face, match it with your state ID. And then that those two, that's one layer of it. The next layer is they're now forcing every app in their app store, which is every app on your phone, to use Apple ID to log in, which will be tied to your state ID. And there you have it every every your state id will be linked to your profiles wherever you go so as much as you could name yourself whatever you want and change your image on clubhouse to whatever you want the reality is is your identity would be easily trackable and provable right down to your state id so it's um it's going to be very interesting to see how this changes um uh, not only behavior on social networks uh but also the inevitable headlines that will come, you know, as a result of, uh, you know, there will be a loss of privacy, absolutely. And some abuse, some state abuse of that headline, you know, we'll see some headline at some point down the road of, you know, somebody, some police department abusing their powers of, you know, tracking somebody and then it'll using it to a- get a date. Yeah, so. Stay tuned for all of that, but it looks like there's uh, we're moving towards that faster than any even I had imagined when I predicted it two months ago. <laughs> so it's coming fast and furious. And the New York Times doing a headline about it points to that perfectly because normally I would expect the New York Times to be doing a story about it four months from now, and it's already here. So um, the next big article is. The from Variety, a profile of Netflix head of movies named Scott Stuber or, or Stubber, who has grown original film output from 21 in 2016 to 70 in 2021 as it makes deals with Spielberg and others. And what they mean is Netflix originally was a platform like Spotify for digital content. Spotify itself doesn't own any of the content that it puts out, with the exception of now they do own some of the podcasts like Joe Rogan's podcast. And own is not necessarily the right word. They're essentially licensing. They have an exclusive license for that content. And same with the other podcasts that they acquired, like Call Me Daddy and whatnot. 
Um, but Netflix uh, per- debatably does own the content uh, where they did 21 original films in 2016 that they financed essentially. And again, it could be a licensing. I'm not, I haven't read the contracts that they do with the filmmakers, but the, in 2021, they're now up to 70 original films exclusively for Netflix. And so they are becoming the replacement of the traditional Hollywood studio where they work very directly with Steven Spielberg to finance the film. And they essentially, for lack of a better word, own the film. And um, Hollywood is, of course, very focused on this issue now that their traditional power players in Hollywood are gone or essentially lost their seat on the throne and have the new uh, butt in in the throne is, you know, these digital platforms. And this is important to note, the nature of technology, which is, they how did netflix manage to replace the hollywood studios was because they built a direct relationship with the consumer who pays them the money and now they collect the money so the money follow the dollars the dollars used to go from the video watchers wallet into the movie theaters uh cash box which was then uh, just a holding place to end up at the movie studio And the movie studio got the dollars. And then the movie studio gave those dollars to the producers and actors to make the content, which then the content went into the movie theater. That's been completely, utterly disrupted. The dollars now go directly to the streaming platform. And then the platform shows you content. And then the platform, due to the massive dollars it's acquiring, is able to make better and better content. And now... They're in control of the distribution. They have the direct relationship with the consumer and the studio plays no role in that. And so they're, they were effectively very literally disrupted. They were the, 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 they, there was a, a complete bypass. And so now if they want to stay relevant, they have to you know kiss the ring of these uh, platforms and hope that they get included in those platforms because they own the relationship with the consumer the same what's important to note here is we're now seeing the exact same dynamic underway with the food delivery apps where the food delivery app doesn't own all the food they don't own the food storage location they really don't own much of anything but they do own the, the relationship with you the consumer and the dollars that you're spending for that food so again the dollar used to go to the supermarket now the dollar is going to the app, and then the app brings you the food from the supermarket. But notice who has the control and the power position in that dynamic. It's now the apps, because as people continue to buy through the app, the app dictates where they get the food from, and eventually they'll stop getting it from the supermarket and get it directly from the farm, and then eventually grow their own farms. And they'll automate the whole thing and automate the packing of the stuff and automate the delivery of the stuff and bye-bye supermarkets, just like bye-bye movie studios. And so this is the important thing to understand of how the digital power dynamic works and how disruption actually works. And, um, And again, people fundamentally misunderstand how technology works, just like even people who buy NFTs fundamentally misunderstand the power of how these things work. So it's, it's important to, to be familiar with how uh, these things uh, unfold and manifest because the supermarkets are going to find themselves 
and just like the movie studios in in increasingly uncomfortable contortions uh, uh, as the power dynamic rapidly shifts from them to these digital platforms who are essentially data companies using acquiring data um, and masterful manipulation of those datas and that give them an asymmetrical advantage that the, that the traditional industries just are completely unawares of. This has also been called disintermediation in the past, right? Essentially, the supermarkets are getting out of the intermediary role. Don't you think so? Yeah. Well, the smart one, the the really smart supermarkets are going to try and acquire what there's two things they could do. And by the way, the banks have the exact same problem because now the consumers are going to apps like the cash app and all of these digital fintech apps. And you have digital mortgage apps, digital insurance apps, all of the services that a traditional bank offers. And there's dozens of them from mortgages and remittances and checking accounts, savings accounts, loans, the, the fintechs. Um, it started out where, you know, with PayPal, essentially, to oversimplify it, who took on literally just one of the functions of a bank, which is, you know, transfer remittances of money and transferings of payments. And then transfer wise, kind of further optimize the remittances and then Klarna optimize another aspect. And now you do have mortgage apps that can give you a mortgage in one minute based on data that the banks wouldn't even know how to even begin to collect and give you a far better mortgages. And then you've got um checking accounts you even have loans now and the buy now pay later thing is essentially an instant loan and you've got even car loans that you can do digitally through apps and there's apps that specialize in loans and every piece of the banking pie is being um originally was made into hundreds of different apps and they each specialized in each one of those services and now you're starting to see the kind of amalgamation of those features into super fintech apps like square which is now a bank with loans and checking accounts and remittances and user pay you know peer-to-peer payments and all of that so square and uh, revolut very notably are starting to add in as many of these pieces of the pie to become super fintech apps that's an inevitable natural evolution of that process and they're going to eventually end up offering nearly you know most of the important services and functions and features of traditional banks and the banks are not able to innovate their own app offerings fast enough to keep up and that's how you know uh, is just watch you know that the nature of those relationships is very interesting because just watch the number of dollars going into revolut and square and these digital digital first companies they're geeks they're data companies who happen to dabble in finance and uh again kind of wild yeah i would say because it's been for it's been so long that they've been on the market like revolut wise right it's not like um i don't know the head of ing or head of uh any other bank didn't have time to really wrap their hands around neobanking which is just crazy well they i think they, they didn't understand the threat they perceived it as, and I, and I, all, all the large banks in Scandinavia are all partners of mine in my events. And we debate, we go, we put them on stage together. And I'd say one of the things that people like that, you know, when we do surveys, one of the things they like most about my events is as I put the Neo Bank CEO, I had the CEO from Revolut on stage with the CEO of Nordic Banks together at the same time and the CEO of Klarna 
on stage at the same time. So it was CEO Revolut, CEO Klarna, two of the big, biggest fintechs on the planet with the CEO of the Nordic's biggest banks. And they debate the future. And Sebastian from Klarna said, we are going to kill you. Those exact words, which a Swede would normally never say, you know, and the whole audience gasps, you know, because in Scandinavia, that's an incredibly strong statement to make. And he says, make no mistake, you, we are going to kill you. You are dead. Your, your days are numbered. It's game over. We already won the game, the chess game. We already ran the simulation a thousand times. And we won a thousand out of a thousand, you know, runs on this. It's incredibly perfectly clear. It's just a matter of time. You know, the, just watch the data underneath that's happening which only the geeks and the neobanks have access to. The traditional banks, the only, the only numbers they see is that their actual number of accounts is going down. You know, so that's that's the data that they see is their accounts are going down. That's one out of a thousand data points that the geeks are looking at, which is the number of accounts that they have being created anyway. The only reason why most people keep traditional banking has to do with their contractual agreements, actually. Oh, well, because... let me say this. When I talk to the banks and I say, you know, why do you seem so secure in your position against these neobanks and fintechs? And they say, because we've been around for 200 years and it's, tr it's about trust and safety and the customer cares about trust and safety and trust and safety and trust and safety. That's their position. And I've heard it from every bank in the Scandinavia. Do you feel that Zelle, Coinbase, Binance, NetSpend, Venmo, Swear and a lot of these newer players that are getting massive market share could undergo some form of acquisition or merger moment and sweep the leg. You mean merging together? I mean, I'm looking at it like the way that Zelle came into it, aligning with FDIC insured banks and providing the same utility as a PayPal or Cash App or Venmo. And that basically positioned them in a, in a top-down situation where they have a market share of that space. But, you know, PayPal, Coinbase, and similar have now adopted crypto, which then kind of give them an edge, and now Zelle is falling behind. So I was wondering if you felt that maybe the future would look like some form of, I, 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 would, I, wouldn't only, I would only describe it as something that's like platform agnostic merger type situation huh. that for it <laughs> they're too I, I think that it could happen but for the time for the foreseeable future they're far too competitive with with each other so i mean so, martin final when you go back to the grocery store side of things from a bonds or a ralph's or a Publix or smart and final mm -hmm. or even a cost or a sam's club um you saw a lot of that gobble up uh acquisition merger or complete sell-off rebrand repackage and then include this whole delivery side of things so they could beat out the Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates of the world. And so having their in-house delivery systems basically would be blockbuster on wheels for Netflix to get the legs swept. So it's like they're not necessarily becoming savvier, but they're trying to edge one another out with whoever has the faster, stronger, yeah. I guess, brick and mortar that's adopted. That's flexible, you know. Yeah, I think they're trying to stop the bleeding by addressing where they think most of the bleeding's coming from, and they think the bleeding's coming from ah, our customers want delivery to their house, so we need to offer that, uh, right? And they're right; that is a big fundamental part of it. But they're they're bleeding from multiple 
wounds that, and and they're not cognizant of some of the other wounds that they are some of their other vulnerabilities that the tech companies are able to take advantage of i think a big one is also that uh, those brands get the customer like they get it and whereas banks don't get it <laughs> and it's um, they solve for so many uh, just those uh, tedious issues that you would normally have with like the paper or you know the amount of paperwork they need to provide and all of that like they extend that kind of trust uh, to the customer and then the customer usually responds with loyalty and it's so it creates that it creates that bond i feel between those neo banks and brands that uh, uh, those traditional banks don't have like the banks are the enemy you know and those neo banks are the the friend the enabler that get you whatever you need very fast yeah maria you'll you'll appreciate this point which is every tech proper tech startup starts off with a very simple proposition that they then test endlessly right and they they have some theory you know of some product that people are going to like or some service and then they don't just build it they test it and you put it out there and you test it and you look at the data as the result and there's a healthy obsession with the data to see how the user actually responds and then you optimize 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 and you a you know you you put out 10, 10 choices that customers choose disproportionately option A. Okay, great. Let's put out 10 more new choices and include A in there again. And let's see how it does. Oh, and this time B one. Okay, great. Now we have B and 10 more new choices like B. And then, oh, it looks like uh, F won that one. Okay. And it's this endless iteration of optimization based on actual data. Totally yeah, yeah, emotionally I mean... removed from the outcomes. And that is fundamentally what the traditional... Uh, companies that they're disrupting just are not able to bring themselves to do because they're not. Yeah, I think this. Yeah, this goes back to really, um, you know, like your opinions are only as valuable as your data that can back it up. <laughs> because you know what I think and what you think really is uh, not important um, unless the customer also uh, approves, right? So, yeah, and and I think um, it's it's a and the other thing that. Um, I can go to startups is this imperfection. So the testing has to do with the fact that like, it's kind of, you release half-baked stuff, but because you give it to the customer early and they get to experience it, they're also more lenient in terms of, you know, uh, being judgmental. And they, they, uh, they help you. They actually help you with their, their usage and their feedback to really improve very quickly, much faster than releasing a whole new like neobank limb of a you know Royal Bank of Scotland or whatever, um, or or any other huge bank, um, so I think it helps um, that you know you move a lot faster. In terms of the acquisitions and mergers, I think if anything, they could maybe try to buy out some of those brands, but they would definitely not be able to rebrand them under the old school banks uh, branding because no one would fall for it. So they could be like the silent supporter, uh, those old traditional banks, I think. Um, if, if anything, for, for the ones that are really uh, paving the, the, the roads. One second, Charles. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hand it to Charles, but I want to say one interesting thing that we're noticing now is that these bigger fintechs like Revolut, like Klarna, are now on acquisition sprees of their own of other startups. And that's... Yeah, that's, fair enough, right? That, like that's, they, they went past it already and they're like, we don't need you. Now we, we want to build our own thing, which is which is actually great because, you know, how much of that old school um, business, you know, doing. Of, um, but my, can we my really question handle? is, well, we just read an article that Square just acquired a buy now, pay later. 
we read an article a week ago. The Klarna just bought. Uh, well, Klarna is a buy now pay later. But Klarna bought a so, two last week two startups. One uh, apparel, which the CEO was a friend, and we brought him in stage here to tell us the story, and a social marketing and a social influencer app. Klarna made two fintech acquisitions yesterday or last week. Square made one this week. They'll make another one next week. Why aren't the banks making these acquisitions is my point. And this this tells you that this disruption is going to now accelerate now that the original OG fintechs are big enough to start acquiring the next generation of more specialized fintechs. This uh, battle is going to become even more asymmetrical. Um, Charles, you wanted to make yeah. a point? I, I just think I, I just, one, one more thing I want to say that um, if you really want to see the future, I think it really helps to have um, a 14 or 15 year old on your board uh, for like advisory, really. And it sounds hilarious, but actually, uh, just because we are so closed off in our minds, it's like we're never going to use Snapchat, we're never going to use TikTok. Like, I'm too old for this, but really, you're building for the future. So, those guys are building for the people that are today 11 or 12 years old. And this is the, I think this is the main big like a game changer that they're seeing instead of building for us. They don't, they don't build uh, businesses for themselves today. They're building for their kids. So I think that is, I think a big shift in mindset. Charles. I think one of the issues here though, that's underexplored is the role of stopping money laundering. Um, and I think that you're going to start seeing a lot more crackdown on that in the next like five years or so. Because, you know, in the, in the history of PayPal, there's a, there's a great book on this by a friend of mine named Derek Jackson called The PayPal Wars, which I highly recommend. But essentially, my understanding of what was happening with PayPal is there was all kinds of fraud occurring on the platform. There was all kinds of shady operations. And eBay was essentially forced to acquire them. And if you follow the history of Pierre, you know, Midiar and his family's connections to the intelligence services, uh, you know, and, and his connections to this day of the intelligence services, um, you really start to understand that PayPal, you know, had to be acquired because it was becoming too dangerous. And in much the same way as Netflix has put this sort of like kibosh on a lot of money laundering activities uh, that used to take place in the, in the, um, in the studio business uh, where there's all sorts of shady financing deals and shady operators running around um, it's all a lot more transparent these days. So I think that that's partly why, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, ways in which the government helps these these companies grow um, simply because it's much easier to say control one Netflix than like a 10 or so studio system. But in the case of um, the banking, I think what's underexplored is just the role in which banks are very much creatures of the state. And so if you look at something like, say, a Stripe, I mean, Stripe is very much you know, Wells Fargo's bitch, right? Like, you know, they, they tell them what to do more or less. And I think a lot of these fintech companies, I think it's country to country specific, but a lot of the times they're subject to the whims and regulations, uh, you know, and, and desires of the regulators. So for instance, when I previously lived in Texas, you know, there are all these laws that essentially make it so that you can start a bank quite easily in Texas, but the bank can only grow as large as the Texas market. Um, and I think we're going to see, you know, to the extent that the banks really need to compete, I think you'll, you'll see them try to change some of the regulatory laws. But I suspect that there's probably a world in which the banks and the fintech properties can coexist. Um, 
at least at least over the next five, 10 years. I mean, if you're if you're really trying to put the hurt on like a JP Morgan Chase or some of these others, I mean, these are very, very massive, you know, infrastructures that are very hard to uh, to really like to disrupt in quite the same way. And just on a final point on the groceries, um, you know, there's there's all sorts of different grocery stores. There's this great book that just came out recently called Becoming Trader Joe, um, which is about the history of Trader Joe's, which will be familiar to some of the American audience. And essentially his, his argument was like, there's all kinds of niches that haven't been hitherto explored in groceries. And maybe when we have delivery and all these other things, we'll start to see more exotic offerings on the part of, uh, of grocery stores rather than the sort of just standard fare. So we've got. Can I Charles, um, jump in um, on the banks, please? Go ahead. Um, yeah. So Charles, you're 100% right on the infrastructure of banks. So just to give you an India example, India does not uh, have digital only bank licenses. Um, and the biggest group that's lobbying against those digital-only bank licenses are the traditional banks. So today, the neobanks have to partner with the traditional banks, and that's what, and the fintechs are partnering, etc. And a lot of the digital, uh, the traditional banks, and Monica is not here, but she can validate this. But a lot of the traditional banks are saying, you know what? We'll keep an eye on all these fintechs, their potential acquisition targets for us. Why build it from scratch when we know, when we can see what what the game is with these guys and then we'll partner or acquire or do something with the ones who lost. Right, uh, and, the, and the state has a huge incentive to make sure all transactions are known to it, right? So that's sort of what you see with the Venmo or some of these other players. And so... Yeah, I think the banks are in a very good position where they can essentially watch as things develop, uh, certainly in, in, you know, as these, I mean, you can't really start a new bank these days. So a lot of these fintech platforms, they sort of rest on top of the existing infrastructure. So I don't know that I'd necessarily make the case that the banks are as worried as, say, some other industry where there isn't necessarily the governmental, you know, tacit or explicit support. Guys, I I've been wondering. Um, uh, one, actually, one second. I just want one second, Mohan. Can I just um, one one Meseret Messi wanted to say something, and then and then you can say something, and then I wanted to just say something quickly. Is that all right? So, Messi, go ahead. Oh, thank you, Carl. Uh, I was just gonna quickly add that um, just for us, even as we are neglect, <laughs> we are very very small sample, but uh, we be living in Africa and we have like uh, Canadian and American banks and credit cards, and we just had to suspend all of the fintechs and payments that we do because um, there has been a lot of fraud um, just last month. Uh, somebody, I don't know how they got the number, our credit card number from Citibank, and they did like a ton of Ubers and things like that. So the bank suspended all of our cards, which happens all the time. We travel even within Africa or other places. We have to tell them where we are going because it just has been so many. So uh, my husband uh, can't convince him anymore except using our city credit card. We abandoned using any of the fintechs. So we know also all our friends who have been expats and traveling around. Um, so I think fraud, as somebody mentioned earlier, is is a, a, a real thing that happens to us personally. I just wanted to add that. I'm done speaking. I think I think facial recognition will 
clamp down on some aspects of fraud, but it remains a huge issue. And I remember, you know, before Jack Dorsey became targeted by Paul Singer at Twitter and that hostile sort of takeover, I spoke with him about uh, about Square and implementing facial recognition and sort of a world in which you could pay with your face. And I think when it comes to countries where trust is low, you'll probably see a lot more biometrics used to validate identity, which is a form of validating all the stuff that fintech ultimately rests upon. Hey, Tyler, mm-hmm. I've been wondering for the last many minutes when you started talking about this, what the story with the Chinese uh, fintech companies is. Are they in a similar situation like the one that you were describing about the Western uh, banks versus Western fintech firms? I would say n- not because <clears throat> kind of to Charles' point, the the government there is, well, it's interesting because the, the tech fintechs have more data than the traditional banks. And in the case of China, they actually understand and appreciate the, the power of that data that those fintechs have that the traditional banks don't. So it might be interesting to see how China uses that reality or knowledge of that reality to their advantage as a state. In the U.S., um, that the state, uh, Charles kind of made that point, is uh, the, I wonder if they'll, the state might eventually be in favor of, <clears throat> it's a really interesting point. Hmm. So, so for instance, ICBC and all these humongous Chinese banks, are they feeling in any shape or form threatened by any uh, upstart fintech firms in China is the kind of question I'm asking. It doesn't really matter in the case of China because the state owns everything anyway. So it's um, how to, who who helps the state more, I guess, is will ultimately be. Yeah, I mean, Ali, Alipay and, and a whole bunch of the, I mean, they just take control of it and, and start driving it. But wouldn't you, Mohan? You, well, that's that, a great, Cal, that's a great that point, question, which is. Yeah, I mean, for, Alipay is your upstock, right? Well, check that's this out. Upstock. Because this, in the yeah. case of the CBDC, the Chinese uh, digital yuan, which is their main focus at the moment, uh, one of certainly, that how they're going to make that Chinese digital currency a reality in, in terms of utilization of people is through Alipay and WhatsApp Pay. And so they're now te- they forcing them to test it. <laughs> and of course, that test will go <laughs> very well. And then they're going to force the apps to you know use it everywhere on the entire country. And then everyone's going to be using the central bank digital currency. And that's completely uh, enabled by the fintechs, not by the actual banks. I suppose but I thought that- even the regular banks are supposed to support all this digital Yuan and such. Yeah, they are. The Central Bank of China's. Well, that's how it started. Was they made the the actual physical banks um, have the accounting capable of dealing with it because the fintechs kind of play into those at the end of the day, and now they're reaching you know from the from the center of the tree or the trunk of the tree outward. And it's it, I'm I'm awaiting the headline in about two weeks from now that says you know the test of the. Um, Alipay, WeChat Pay with the central bank digital currency was a success and they've now rolled it out. I mean, that could happen in the next month. 
it could happen in the next two to three weeks that you know China switches over to full central bank digital currency. Yeah, I find it kind of unlikely, though. I mean, in in the final analysis, what what matters is which which currency is the world's reserve currency, and then everything else is sort of built off the banking infrastructure, which sort of rests on that, right? So, so long as it remains the dollar, uh, and the, and so long as the Chinese are increasingly sort of segregated or separated, I suppose is a better way of putting it from the rest of the financial system, that it's going to probably be a bit like how it is in Cuba, where you have different, you know, two different forms of currency. So I, I find it, um, it, it'll be an interesting experiment, but my, my intuition on it is that it probably won't go as far as people might think. But they want to use the Belt and Road Initiative also to push this as the bigger story, right? Of course, but in the case of Belt and Road, the U.S. is essentially advising its allies, go ahead, take the Chinese money, and you don't necessarily have to repay them. What are they going to do? Invade you in Africa or in, you know, Mexico or in... And so I think what will ultimately end up happening is that the Chinese will have spent a lot of money around the world and essentially lost control of their investments. That's there's a point within Pakistan at the moment that kind of speaks to that because that was yes. one of one of China's largest Belt and Road initiatives is Pakistan, as uh, Faraz can confirm, being from Pakistan. And in the past was about a week ago at one of the large projects uh, within the Belt and Road within they're, they're doing multiple simultaneous, very large projects in Pakistan, including a port down near the. Persian Gulf and then a hydroelectric dam up near the Khyber Pass and the that that hydroelectric dam um everyone downstream for that is not a big fan of that necessarily because Pakistan's having a bit of wa- some water problems already so <clears throat> the a bus essentially there was a suicide bomber that exploded their car and it knocked a bus full of the Chinese engineers down the canyon into the into the dam itself and it killed all the it was about nine (laughs) chinese engineers responsible for that project and then four local pakistanis and then there was another and well then the 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 kind of uh one of the ministers from china came out very hot you know telling pakistan they need to crack down on you know the whoever was responsible for that and punish them severely and then there was another incident just in the past uh, three days where it was a cab uh, with chi- the Chinese um, engineers in the back. And this was a, uh, the other main project, which is down near the Persian Gulf, the port down there. And a motorcycle assassin came by and fired into the back of the cab. And so it it seems like the, uh, yeah, China is now incredibly concerned about the <clears throat> incredible investment they've made into Pakistan and how this is now going to play out there. Anywho. Yeah, but, wow. but Tyler, this, has been, this has been going on since 2018. There was an attack even in 2018 against uh, one of the shipping companies, uh, again, with the Chinese. So there's, uh, you know, the Uyghurs, the, there's a common understanding if you check online that it's all of those uh, Uyghur dis, uh, militants who cannot operate in China are deciding to go after Chinese targets outside of China. Correct. 
Well, that's the exact same thing happening in Myanmar at the moment, where if you go on the, the Irrawaddy, which is the English source of news out of Myanmar, which I highly recommend. And if you have Uyghur friends who you live with and work with every day and they have family there, uh, as I do, uh, what you'll hear repeatedly is the 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 Burmese or the Myanmarese, the they are now attacking the Chinese warehouses, pipelines and dams in Myanmar because they've come to understand that the source of the coup was China. And the, the reason for that was because there's a pipeline from um, near Bangladesh, right in Myanmar. The Chinese built this massive uh, oil pipeline from the coast from Myanmar up into China, and it goes to Kuming, China, which is kind of southern western China. And that pipeline uh, project, the 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 people were not in favor of, never were in favor of. It was put in place when the junta was in power previously, then there was a democratically elected uh, government. That democratically elected government basically is not friendly uh, to that pipeline or the massive hydroelectric dams that were being built in Myanmar. And so the uh, military junta came back and in the all of the reports locally in Myanmar was that Beijing had flown in crates of and this is all cut now cut they have photos and videos of this of these uh airplanes that had turned off their correspondence and kind of flown under the cover of darkness into Myanmar 48 hours before the coup started and unloading pallets of unknown material and then the coup happened 48 hours later those planes went flew straight back to Beijing this is widely reported. And when confronted about those mysterious planes, the Chinese says, oh, we were just picking up some shrimp. And and no no flights were allowed in or out of Myanmar at that moment um, in the 48 hours before the coup happened. But the miraculously two planes managed to come in and out of, uh, out of Mandalay to Beijing. So anyway, the... The citizens of Myanmar are now attacking all the Chinese infrastructure there um, because they feel so that insane. that's what's enabling that that's what's enabled the coup to happen. That the real purpose of the coup was for China to have their favored rulers back in place because the democratic rulers were not um, doing China's bidding in uh, Myanmar. Yeah, I would say just generally the Chinese have a real branding problem, you know, worldwide, and it continues the pace. I mean, what does it say about a country that, you know, they r routinely have to ally with dictatorships to get done what they want to get done? Mm. Well, I, I, I don't know. Messi, I think you might be aware. In June this year, there was a big video that went viral of a Chinese engineer slapping around a few or arguing with a few Sierra Leone uh, workers in, in one of the railway projects and that went viral and that just created an anti-Chinese sentiment in uh, Sierra Leone. I was talking to a friend there and he said, oh, it's slowly falling apart. Uh, but it is, uh, it was interesting. I don't know, Messi, if you've got any thoughts around what's happening in Africa. 
Yeah, I think it it is a starting. Um, they used to like everybody used to love the Chinese because I think uh, they were a little bit different in terms of extending that financing. Uh, that they don't question what you do. Uh, they don't have conditionality. They don't do anything. So everybody looked at it as a good alternative to the Western way of you know financing projects. But like you mentioned, um, there has been a lot of. Uh, anti-Chinese starting everywhere. Uh, for example, they were smuggling a lot of uh, elephant tuscans, the illegal, um, that, that happened, the illegal trading of that, that happened a lot. Um, they have been getting caught as well, uh, smuggling in a lot of things because they bring in their own employees and then once they get here, here in Ethiopia, for example, um, you're not supposed to bring in uh, cell phones. The government is is the big party in in controlling the telecommunication. But there were some who have been caught smuggling in a lot of small parts and putting them together and selling them in the black market, as well as doing a lot of counterfeits. Um, like you said, uh, the Saralion episode, um, it, it just has been a ton of things. But the worst that happened was the COVID. So when COVID happened, the racism, I think, uh, when COVID happened, there were a lot of Africans who are studying, getting some of them a lot of scholarships from the Chinese where they have been trying to strengthen the cultural ties as well, not just the money ties. So there are, uh, including Ethiopians and other African countries uh, studying in Africa, uh, in China, and COVID happened and those Africans weren't even allowed to get in and, and do grocery shopping or things like that. Uh, most African countries were very offended, even officially trying to uh, get into the Chinese government why they are treating Africans like that. Uh, there were a ton of videos that went viral uh, from the grocery store, um, some Chinese security uh, kicking out them, a lot of Africans. So as you mentioned, there has been a ton that's starting now. Yeah. I'm done speaking. Okay, let's get into the next headlines here. The next big one is <clears throat> Bangalore-based online learning startup, so an ed tech called Unacademy, raises 440 million round at a 3.44 billion, billion valuation as uh, the Indian online lead learning startup looks to expand into multiple additional categories. <clears throat> and that's gonna be a massive, ed tech is booming. And again, it's um, similar to the fintechs and the uh, supermarkets. It's like the schools are now going to have to be mindful that they are bat <coughs> battling uh, ed techs. And uh, I don't uh, envy the schools in this one because that, that is about the most um, un-tech savvy industry I can imagine. And having taught uh, computers in, in LA Unified School District, uh, <laughs> You can't do worse than the traditional schools. That's that's one good for for the ed techs. They they really, um, yeah. This is this one's going to be interesting because it, you just so many of the schools are just. So, you think the medical system's broken in American? Holy cow! The the ed, the education system is just holy cow, holy cow. Anyway, then the next big one is. Tyler, can I come in here? Yeah. Just a quick one. Mm -hmm. So, since we have been talking about China before, and now you mentioned EdTech, I'm not sure if you uh, knew this, but uh, 
probably the folks there know this. Uh, China's banned for-profit schools. So I'm, I'm wondering how that would impact ed techs, which are essentially for-profit so schools. Just a little tip for you. We cover news when it's an hour old, and that's about a week old. So we've been talking about that for maybe a 30 hours of combined talk time on that point already. That to, that to us is incredibly old news. Okay, sorry. Right. Um, I, I, I probably didn't hear it before. That's okay. Thanks. So the, yeah, China's telling their ed techs that they're going to be nonprofits. $100 billion disappeared. All the investors who invested billions of dollars in those companies will likely never invest in China again. And um, the, yeah, investors outside of China are likely to never invest in China ever again, which is an interesting consequence of that. Yeah, and and the bigger story, if you wanted to to, to get into around India, is is the one that uh, you know we've been moving into, which is now is a good time for that money moving into India and also Latin America, right around edtech and other places. So the money's going to go somewhere um, that you know that that the that the foreign investors are not going to now put into the edtech sector, which they previously thought would be a you know like a booming sector. And so Unacademy, the headline today, is is one of those companies in India, right? And Vinay and others have been sharing that. So if you've got any new headlines about how, you know, things are going to move in India, that, that would really add to that story and move that forward if, you, uh, if that's okay. But that's, Do you think that's any of these happening. companies actually work? I mean, isn't that sort of like, the, I mean, I was reading the Chinese critique of these sort of pro- for-profit schools. And... I must say, you know, I'm no China fan, but it seemed eminently reasonable to me that there's a lot of like overpromising and underdelivering on ed tech, and that seems to be kind of a worldwide constant. The interesting aspect of this ed- Chinese ed tech story that was not really reported outside of China, but it was the main theme inside of China was that it was uh, to address the declining birth rate because the, one of the biggest frictions towards having a family in China is the cost of educating the child. So that's why they decided rather than billions of dollars going into the pockets of a few ed tech companies, it should stay in the family's pockets. And that's, you know, they need to address the declining birth rate. But, but Chinese com- VCs haven't stopped investing into ed tech abroad. Chinese, yeah, 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 of course. Ed, ed tech in the rest of the world is going to actually hugely benefit from this because ed people, investors who believe in ed tech now have one less country to focus on, and um, India is likely to be the next benefactor because India is the second biggest ed tech market on the planet after China. So the the this is why this headline is no surprise at all to us. And uh, Tyler, remember we had uh, David Chang on here, I think during that week. And he stressed also that, um, you know, property and, and, and mm. cost of living was another yeah. major concern in China. Right. So, so we, exactly. Um, Chris. So we, we would you short the uh, would you short that sector? <laughs> right. So the next question is fundamentally. And I love this about China, which is that when they announced their declining birth rate data about uh, six weeks ago, um, which they hadn't done the two years previously very mysteriously, although now it makes sense because the data was so bad they didn't w- want to reveal it, but now they're sort of forced to. You can't 
continue. <laughs> you can't be a country and no longer report your birth rate data as every other country does. And after missing two years, they did report it on the third year. It's shockingly low. They now have to come to terms with it. And they are. And they're not being slow about it, as they're known for doing. So uh, the analysis is what's stopping people from having kids. And one of them is the price of education. So they stopped that whole industry. And they're working hard to make uh, resolve that and make education av available and e kind of equal and affordable to everybody. And then the, one of the next major, when, when the question was, well, if we had known that was coming, of course, we could have, you know, taken shorted the <laughs> those ed tech stocks that the, the few that are traded outside of China on on the New York Stock Exchanges. And then if uh, the, then, you know, kind of selfishly, very greedily, you know, what other industries might they go into? Because they're going to have to do more than just, you know, stop the ed tech companies. And then inside of China, uh, our, our smart friends on the ground there in Beijing um, said the next industries that they'll likely go into are fixing the housing problem because it's just become um, like not so different from LA or New York or San Francisco, cost prohibitive to raise a family in those areas. And so rather right, than again, uh... rather than the money going into the hands of the property developers, let's create the regulatory environment so that uh, we make it possible for families to exist in those areas. I do sometimes wonder if the Chinese might be ahead of the curve on a lot of these things. I mean, yeah. forcing, forcing people to domesticate their own data I mean, that seems, you know, theoretically sound, reasonable, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to drive down the cost of healthcare, education and housing. I mean, goodness gracious, if that were a program offered by a major American political party, I could find myself voting for it <laughs> if I believe voting mattered, you know. And, 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 you know, Charles, what I love about you is you're so clearly a patriot, but you do call things as you see it. <laughs> And you have to admire, well, I mean, there's a plus and a minus to the efficiency of the Chinese system. When it works in your favor, it's very admirable. <laughs> when it's, you know, when it's working against your interest, you know, it's it's horrific. So it depends which side of the sword you're on, I guess. But, well, and they're also a bit more honest in that they have five-year, 10-year plans, which we, of course, have in the U.S. We're just not as overt or explicit about it. So the next big article is... Tyler, yes. this is Rendit. I have a question on this mm -hmm. uh, tech sector. Mm -hmm. Maybe Carl or Vinay can also answer it because it's much rooted to the Indian culture. So uh, in India, typically, you go to school or college and most of the kids go to a private tuition or class in the evenings because they feel like uh, the school and colleges, are the teaching method is not good. So they go for a private uh, class in the evenings or in the weekends. So I was wondering, like, when the, all these tech companies comes in, what will happen to these private uh, or maybe to the school uh, classes? Because they already got this experience of online, which is much superior than uh, the way which they are taught in these private classes or in the colleges. So what will happen when they go back to the schools in another, like, say, five months or six months? All these private tutors needs to be onboarded. Whether all these uh, tech companies need to find out all, all who are these private tutors and onboard them to an academy or by Jews or others. I think it really Listen, depends I'm, I'm on not... the content uh, because Singapore had the same problem as well. Because the tiger parents want their 
uh, children to be ahead of the curve, right? So they usually send them for private tuitions. But most of these tuitions are actually pre actually preparing the students to pass their exams. So it really depends on what's the ed tech content that is going to enrich the children. And, and this is I'm also... not on the just hey just oh, yes, sorry, one, one second yeah no don't worry it's okay um, just uh, I'm not on the ground there um, but but here's the thing though uh, in India so Vinay or somebody else on the ground uh, physically how Indian parents are reacting to this but I'll tell you as a parent and and I've got a 16 year old and and the general kind of sense of and what Cheryl was alluding to around being a tiger parent right so tuition in the UK is also a massive private tuition. In fact, the government plays a role in it in the UK. So the government plays a role in the whole tuition world for the state schools in the UK. So they, because the state schools generally don't perform as, as well as the private schools, the government gives uh, subsidies now, and especially over the pandemic, has committed billions of dollars uh, to give subsidies for these state schools to provide private tuition for these students to catch up and to do better. Right. So this private tuition industry is generally speaking a it's 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 sitting around. It's lucrative for the teachers. They leave the state school systems and they go and do this. And it's a it's it's a phenomenal space that. But I agree that the online stuff is going to basically disrupt all the physical stuff. And uh, that, uh, yeah, we may want to move on the subject, but I that, that's what I'd say to that. Tyler. Mm -hmm. I just wanted, and Cal, I wanted to actually share a statistic that I found doing a little bit of research because ed tech is something that I also hold close to my heart. And Alormi and Carl have been doing some awesome conversations. But I just want to give you an example of the growth that happened post-COVID. And I will find you the name of the company because it's in my notes and I don't think I have the correct spelling. But there was a quote from the organization that said their company, which was an ed tech went from 200,000 students to 1 million students in Latin America in uh, like basically impact of COVID-19. So I think that's what's going to be very interesting as well as to look at the ESG and impact and as well as the, the COVID-19 impact. And what are the actual problems that are affecting those regions in order to expand that access to education, right? So ironically, because I was writing a little bit of a, re a report on it for myself, just so I could have more awareness because I'm, I'm building something in Mexico, is what are the challenges to raising capital? And the two top challenges were education is just a challenging sector in itself, and I understand that because when you start thinking of education, you start to see how, like, what um, it was, I think it was Maria that said it, you got to think how the kids think. You know, how they want to learn today is different how you and I may have wanted to learn back like 20 years ago. And I think there has to be a blended learning approach towards that. And I've also seen that when training software for Fortune 100 companies. It's like, I think the, the span of someone's brain attention at this point right now is like 45 minutes. So I've got to break every 45 minutes of a thought. And most of the sessions are not more than four hours because after four hours, the brain is a bit toast, right? So when you start to see that challenge, I think education in general is evolving as Tyler, I agree with you, and Charles is probably, his comments as well about China kind of thinking ahead and being proactive with some of these things. The United States doesn't have the best education. Even when I was a young girl, my parents had to pay for Catholic school because the public school system wasn't the best. And middle school, yes, but once you go to high school, once you go to certain areas in demographics like New York City and the boroughs or in like Miami where, or South Central, L, um, South Central LA or, you know, Southside Chicago, it's very difficult to get a good education unless you take your kids to a private school because you fear they're getting shot or killed. Let's just leave it at that. 
When it comes to the second percentage, which was interesting, which was 41%, limited access to international investors. And I think that's pretty much one of the Achilles of Latin America because it's a very, um, there is such a passionate culture and a very passionate way of doing business in LATAM. And that passionate way of doing business is that you have to take the good with the not so understood, right? I'm passionate. I, I could get spicy with someone. We could have a pause, a crazy conversation, but I still care about that person and I still respect their opinion. It might not have sounded like that to the outside person listening in and observing, but we still have great love for each other because it's also how we sometimes communicate, right? We're very passionate about our topics. And I think that access to international investors can be very challenging if that international investor does not understand the dynamics of how the culture engages. And I think Messi might be able to also kind of share a teensy bit about Africa as well, because the African continent has um, also, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are African-American and from Ghana and Kenya, so both. And we also have these conversations that are really powerful. And we say, wow, our friends must think we're fighting all the time, but we're not. We're just having passionate conversations. And I think that could also be a hindrance because that's just cultural dynamics and cross-cultural behaviors. And when one could recognize that it's not something negative, that it's actually just how we engage and get things done, then maybe that might open up a little possibility that we might get more access to those international investors that may subconsciously be judging the way we talk or the way we engage. But okay. just saying. There you go. So the next big story is <clears throat> that uh, from The Guardian UK about a report uh, on data that Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok failed to act on 84% of posts spreading anti-Semitism reported via their own complaint systems. And it says there's been a serious and systemic failure uh, to tackle anti-Semitism across the five biggest social media platforms, resulting in a safe space for racists. Um, again, anyone need any more evidence? We're going over to uh, identity verification <laughs> anytime soon. Pay, pay attention. Um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube failed to act on 84% of posts spreading anti-Jewish hatred and propaganda reported via the platform's official complaints systems. Researchers from the Center for Countering Digital Hate, CCDH, a UK-US nonprofit organization flagged hundreds of anti-Semitic posts over a six-week period early this year. The posts included Nazi, neo-Nazi, and white supremacist content receiving received up to 7.3 million impressions, although each of the 714 posts clearly violated the platform's policies. Fewer than one in six were removed and had the associated accounts deleted after being pointed out to the moderators. The report found that the platforms are particularly poor at acting on anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, including tropes about Jewish puppeteers, the Rothschilds family, George Soros, as well as misinformation connecting Jewish people to the pandemic. Holocaust denial was often left unchecked with 80% of posts <clears throat> denying or downplaying the murder of 6 million Jews receiving no enforcement action whatsoever. Facebook was the worst offender acting on just 10.9% of posts despite introducing tougher guidelines on anti-Semitic content last year. In November 2020, the company updated its hate speech policy to ban content that denies or distorts the Holocaust. However, the a post promoting viral article that claimed the Holocaust was a hoax uh, accompanied by a falsified image of the gates of Auschwitz with a white supremacist meme was not removed after researchers reported it to the moderators. Instead, it was labeled as false information 
which CCHD said contributed to it reaching hundreds of thousands of users. The statistics from Facebook's own analytics tools shows that the article received nearly a quarter of a million likes, shares, and comments across the platform. Twitter also showed a poor rate of enforcement. YouTube acted on 21% of reported posts, TikTok around 18, or Instagram and TikTok around 18. And the report entitled, titled Failure to Protect found that the platform did not act in three out of four cases of anti-Semitic comments sent to Jewish users. When TikTok did act, it more frequently re- removed individual comments instead of banning the users who sent them, barring accounts that sent direct anti-Semitic abuse in just 5% of cases. And the article goes on and on. So I'm tweeting it out uh, from The Guardian. And next up is the... How do they, how do they determine if something is anti-Semitic or not? Is it saying in the article? Uh, no, there's a link to the report where it probably gets into the more granular ah. definitions. The next big one is Microsoft is avoiding antitrust scrutiny by rebranding itself as nice and boring, even as it reverts to some of the behaviors that led to the antitrust prosecutions in the 90s. And this is from The Atlantic. How has Microsoft escaped scrutiny of reinvigorated antitrust regulators <laughs> by, by rebranding itself as boring? Is their interesting conclusion. Um, so it's a, as typical with The Atlantic, it's a very verbose article, but usually worth reading. Um, and then uh, the next biggest article is how the radical environmental themes of the game Final Fantasy VII, released in 1997 for the original PlayStation, influenced a generation of environmentalists. That's an interesting thought. Um, uh, from Ars Technica. From activists to families, Final Fantasy Seven's cautionary planetary tale still resonates. <laughs> that would be, that's quite an interesting theory. Uh, that a video game is what's inspiring a lot of the um, kind of uh, environment. Is that true in your case, Dan? Was it Final Fantasy VII in your case? That's that's your big official call out, Dan, to share some uh, green tech news. Okay. He's not here. Okay. Maybe he went to sleep. It's a little late over there in California. But I imagine- Final Fantasy is created by the Japanese, right? Um, I don't know is my short I, answer. Because PlayStation, right, Sony? So yeah, no, that's I right. I guess yeah, I guess it's intended. So the Japanese yeah, but, are way ahead again. The movie, the movie was pretty good too. I mean, it, it definitely had a stirring effect on me when I was a kid. Okay, next one is that the sales tools. There's this one's interesting. Um. There's AI into medtech, bank Mercury, which offers banking services to startups, raises 120 million, including a five million allotment for crowdfunding led by Coa2, which is the face the big Facebook fund. Um, the banking services to startups that I am kicking myself. Well, Silicon Valley Bank actually deserves a shout out on that front. Um, who actually? 
and not a surprise because you have so many startups in Silicon Valley that Silicon Valley Bank started realizing, you know what, if we only get a few of these that could become the next Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, we as a bank are going to be in great shape. And indeed they are. And Shai Goldman specifically deserves a shout out from Silicon Valley Bank because he kind of led that initiative for Silicon Valley Bank of like trying to become the bank for startups, which makes sense when you're in Silicon Valley and your name is Silicon Valley Bank. So though shocking, hmm? their services are quite poor, I must say, hmm? having used them in the past. Hmm? So I don't know if anyone else had that experience, but hmm. I could I wouldn't recommend them. The the idea though that banks are now going to start focusing on specific uh, demographics uh, is kind of new and, or getting certainly becoming more popular where this startup Mercury, a company which offers software and banking services for scaling startups announced you know, this big round. The company says it will use the funding to expand its team and continue developing products that help customers scale their businesses, specifically startups. And Mercury, and that's a great, great business to be in because again, if they grow into being huge companies, then uh, you're in a really good position as a bank. And But the the interesting thing is, is that I didn't mention startups when we talk about there are now black banks and there's even banks for um, LGBTQ plus and there's banks for creators, which Square is kind of branding itself as a bank for the creative, the creator economy by making the right tools and products and services for creators and Mercury's doing it for startups. And so you're going to continue to see this as banks kind of specialize on particular demographics. So that's I'm curious to know why Charles is saying that she's, he's not recommending Silicon Valley Bank and how is that compared to Mercury Bank? He doesn't. Yeah, I would just say in general, if you're outside of Silicon Valley or outside of Mercury Bank ecosystem, so if you're doing things that are slightly off the beaten path and any of the other places that are building tech companies that uh, I found that working with either of those banks to be quite challenging. It really kind of only makes sense if you're in like the Bay Area. It's been my experience. Yeah. The reason why I ask this is because uh, if you I remember, Stripe Atlas actually helped overseas founders to set up company in, in U.S. So uh, through Stripe, you can actually set up banks remotely even without having to go over to U.S. So the That's two right. banks are offered is either SVB, uh, Silicon Valley Bank or Mercury Bank. Yeah, I use Stripe Atlas to set up one of my companies. And, you know, it's quite cumbersome to, to finally get integrated with Mercury. And Mercury rejects an awful lot of people who aren't necessarily in, in the ecosystem already. So I just, I would, you know, my, my knowledge might be a bit out of date. Like I did do this like 18 months ago or so. So maybe things have changed. I mean, that's an eon these days in tech. But uh, my experience setting up the banking services for two different businesses has found, found both businesses to be somewhat lacking. My, my advice to people who are starting up startups, I mean, it depends if you're doing it, what state you're doing it in. But in, there's a lot of good op uh, opportunities in Texas. And there's also a lot of very good ones in Virginia, too, for those who are not, you know, that are in other tech corridors. So I think it sort of depends. Yeah. See, I haven't used Silicon Valley Bank myself, but they are quite active in the entrepreneur VC kind of uh, circles in yeah. Silicon Valley, sponsoring the Thai uh, conference and things like that. You know, they, right. they sponsor many events. Yeah, I mean, but my understanding of how sort of Stripe got sort of taken off was Stripe had a deal with Y Combinator. So if you're going through the Y Combinator program, 
you sort of had to use Stripe. And now that Stripe Atlas has been set up, they're sort of having two preferred banks, Silicon Valley Bank and Mercury Bank. But, and of course, those banks have all kinds of like, you know, relationships with Stripe. And so I think one should be sort of careful not to just sort of def- do the default option and just sort of think through the kind of services that your your company is going to need over time. Yeah, I, I was going to add that um, I, I've, I've um, sold my fund in Africa. I have uh, helped a few startups. In fact, in the early days, Patrick reached out to me to you know get some African startups on their platform. And what I found is that okay, they were definitely the leaders in this sort of getting foreign startups incorporated in, in the U.S. But now I'm seeing more and more startups using other options that have emerged. So there's not competition from them. That I think what Charles is saying is right that you should not. We should be careful. And I should mention that if you're doing anything in fintech, for instance, that's not going to work with Stripe Atlas because then they would see you as a slash competitor or they could trick their KYC ML rules, right? So I, I had a lot of African startups who are doing fintech, as you know, that's a big area, uh, been rejected by Stripe Atlas because they're what they were doing was like, I mean, for example, if you're doing a cryptocurrency exchange. You know, or something like that, or a wallet or something. Good luck getting a Stripe Atlas account uh, and getting it incorporated. And the other thing as well is that Stripe Atlas has been taking a longer time to get your EIN number, your tax number um, as well, which it can take at least two or three months now. And so that's also driving people to use other options to get going faster. So, I mean, it's good. I mean, there's more competition for Stripe Atlas and Mercury Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. But I would say that Silicon Valley Bank absolutely helped lead this charge and they've done a lot in the ecosystem. Yeah, they were doing it very analog, you know. From the beginnings where Shy, I have to, in full transparency, sponsored uh, Jason and I did an event called Open Angel Forum, which was just an angel dinner series, which is where Uber raised their first round, by the way. A lot of of good startups did Thumbtack. But we just get like 20 of the best investors in Silicon Valley together for dinner, and then Uber pitched at the dinner. A lot of, lot of everyone, nearly every startup that pitched oh, yeah. any and of those you, got funded. You, you, My, you said in, Instagram was behind, right? Instagram was working about <laughs> 10 meters it? away from when Uber was doing their pitch, when Travis did the pitch for Uber for that dinner, yeah, on Pier 38, Dog Patch Labs. But the, the point is, is that Silicon Valley Bank sponsored those events and they just wanted everyone to know the pitch was very succinct and made perfect sense, which is most banks don't understand the unique nature of startups and their in you know income and and outflows of you know revenue and we do and so and by the way i i will be your dedicated go-to person here's my cell phone you can text me or call me anytime and i understand you know that you're fundraising and what that means you know and you know i understand the nature of startups and they were kind of the first bank to put a dedicated person who understands the nature of startups with a dedicated person that's really all it took and so they just got a whole bunch of startups signed up and they realized, wow, if we spend, you know, a thousand dollars sponsoring this event, we get, you know, it's just, it didn't take, it was really smart, but it was all analog. I mean, they didn't, it's not like Stripe where it's, you know, it's the complete opposite where there's very little analog. It's all kind of a platform and kind of uh, automated. So uh, it's, I would say, I would say far and away the best bank for those who are starting startups in Texas is Wood Forest Bank. Because first of all, it's a privately held bank, for one, and I don't have any interest in it or anything other than knowing the people who own it. But the people who uh, are the the owners of it were like early investors in Lyft, early investors in a whole number of companies, and they go well out of their way giving you their personal cells of the owners of the bank if they if you have any trouble with your startup, and uh, and I've seen them 
you know, they're, they're a big part of why a lot of startups in Austin have used uh, Wood Forest Bank. Hmm. There you go. Ray, the next big headline is a company called Ray, which uses VR tools powered by Oxford VR to provide on-demand mental health care services. Um, and they just raised $26 million three months after launching, which means they either have a superstar on their team. And there's an echo in the room there. Is that Mabwana? I'm just going to mute you, Mabwana and Renjant and... Miss Kumar, just for safety's sake. So the, um, I'm curious to see why did they raise 26 million after three months of launching? That normally doesn't happen unless you have a really notable person on the founding team. Um, so I'm going to tweet this one out so people can uh, figure that out. But mental health through um, VR is absolutely has tremendous, tremendous potential. Uh, which we've heard really interesting stories. And there is a startup in Stockholm that kind of pioneered this space, and uh, Nicholas will remember their name, but it, of dealing with phobias and all kinds of issues that therapy can, you know, essentially when you go to a therapist, they lay you on a couch and ask you to imagine all kinds of scenarios, which when in VR you no longer need to imagine them. You can really practice being in those environments. And clinical psychologists often bring in the offenders, like your, your your siblings and family who caused you emotional traumas, and sit them in the room with you and try and recreate uh, scenarios and do the you know, acclimation training and whatnot, where which you can do in VR without actually having those people present. You can have avatars, you know, and run very controlled scripts, and it could get it could become truly amazing. VR could equally you could have unimaginable positive and negative use cases uh, safe to say so uh ray just raised a whole bunch of money that that says a lot 26 million after three months of launching the next one is from the washington post that many viewers are experiencing the olympics primarily through not through nbc let's let's play our favorite show uh tech news jeopardy where NBC is kind of the exclusive broadcast network for the Olympics. However, most people are not experiencing the Olympics through NBC. They're experiencing it through some other means. Twitter. YouTube. There, I heard Twitter and YouTube and somebody else tried to jump in. Live streaming. Uh, Mabwana? Is it Mabwana that wanted to jump in? Somebody got cut off. Nobody got Who was that? Mabwana? Welcome to the winner's circle, Mabwana. The answer is TikTok. Uh, The score is evenly tied at 1-1-1-1-1-1-1 with Cal and Charles and Mabwana and and, uh, Dr. Donish uh, and uh, somebody else. So, the... Me. uh, Hold on. Let's mute Mabwana for a second. Okay, so yeah, so TikTok, it says, is the many viewers experiencing it through TikTok, through the athletes themselves, cutting out uh, the middleman as usual, which is the nature of the internet. Uh, So the athletes are doing TikToks, and that's about a whole lot better than NBC can do. And that is a point to reflect on. 
uh, about the nature of the internet and technology and the middlemen are all going to get cut out and the the athletes themselves can make a far better content than NBC ever could. And by the way, it speaks to um, something rel- quite important to, to grapple with, which is the, the TikTok content that the athletes themselves are making obviously is unique. Um, and but more importantly, it's what we call authentic, where NBC, when they make content, they have their narratives and their scripts and their professionalism, which used to work to their advantage and are now working as a disadvantage. And what I mean by this is there was a really interesting video put on YouTube uh, just a few days ago by Peter. What's Peter's last name? He's uh, a, a very popular YouTube creator, and he's um, here, Peter McKinnon is his name. And Peter McKinnon makes tremendously mind-blowingly high-quality video content. And because he is one of the few people who can make just mind-blowingly gorgeous, you know, cinematic, you know, lighting and, and camera angles, and he's just a true master at the craft. And even he, his recent video was he he chose to do a little test where he would use his traditional skills of masterful lighting and you know camera work to or a TikTok video of from just a phone and which was more engaging as a content creation you know format and he chose one subject which was a a coffee maker this kind of belgian siphon coffee maker and he made two separate videos one on TikTok, essentially, with his iPhone, with no editing, no special lighting, no special anything. And then what he would normally do, which, you know, is just this unbelievably gorgeous lighting, unbelievably gorgeous, you know, camera work, and um, which one was more engaging. And it turns out, you know, that the TikTok content, people find more engaging and takes essentially no effort and no skill. (laughs) And people find that content more relatable and likable and shareable than professionally produced content, which is very expensive to produce. And why is that? And why is TikTok kicking YouTube's ass? And fundamentally, because the content is more genuine and authentic and relatable, and YouTube now has to a real challenge on his hands because the YouTube creator ecosystem now has invested in professional cameras, professional lighting rigs, professional studio, sound, microphones, and the users don't like it. The users want authentic, um, you know, they want the athletes with their phone recording video uh, rather than NBC with all of their cameras and uh, lighting and sound and all of that. So it's, it's fundamentally an important thing to understand what's going on, which is, Let me finish this, end with this important point. It's, it's, I think, and we can debate this, this issue of fake news, which is if you have million dollar cameras and lighting rigs and and lighting packages and the the whole thing, uh, you're fake news. It's just, uh, you, you have inherent distrust in your system. If you have that, it, it, the high production value now comes with the baggage of fake news. And that TikTok does not yet. So go ahead. Yeah, so I have some comments here related to the Olympics and why I, um, I kind of 
realized TikTok was ahead here. Um, first of all, I, a lot of my friends were watching it on TikTok and I started to see that, but I'm not a TikTok user. The other thing is I realized being here in Tanzania and trying to watch the Olympics, one, I couldn't get access to it on my local cable family package. For some reason, it was just not working. Terrible UI. Then, so I VPN to, to the UK to use BBC iPlayer, which is great, it works, but I get a very British-centric view of uh, the Olympics, which, which I don't mind to some degree, but if you're showing me like badminton versus like 100 meter dash, right? <laughs> and you're adding all this British commentary, you start to lose me. Um, uh, and so I think that's part of it. And then the other thing as well is that even on Twitter, sometimes when I click on a, a clip, right, of the Olympics, for example, over the weekend, there was obviously the 100 meter dash, the, the Jamaican ladies won. Um, and then you, you also had the Italian winning. Like it would say, like content not in, you know is not re is restricted. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it can't be shown in your region, which makes me wonder whether the athletes are able. Do they own their own? For example, if I am an athlete and I just run around a race and I and I and I tweet and I tweet out or or in this case, um, uh, TikTok out to my followers my um, you know my my race. Do I own that, or is there any Olympic restrictions? Because as you know, the Olympics are licensed to these NBCs and BBCs, and that creates challenges. So I wonder if those are also a part of it. Whether TikTok is able to show more, the athletes obviously are authentic, showing their own selves, but they're also are they able to show their own clips of of what they're doing in, in, in an event. Well, it's a good question. Is um, NBC could have done a deal with the Olympics, saying that athletes are not allowed to do social media. Because now I think in the future they will do so because apparently their TikTok is getting. I, I meant to. I left out an important point in that headline uh, that TikTok's getting more viewership than NBC is. So I imagine in the future that the telecom, you know, the the TV networks are going to insist that the athletes not do that. Also, one, one point. problem with NBC. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It's okay. I can wait. Okay, so sorry, the NBC, another problem with NBC is they don't do live cast, right? So they actually target their audiences in North America. And so they actually don't simulcast. I don't know how many channels they have, NBC. They used to have that, you know, the different NBC channels. But one station that actually does, I'm not pushing it because I'm Canadian, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC. If you want the most widespread coverage, CBC is actually piping their signals to some of the uh, like Caribbean, South America, and Africa, because they actually cover all the different uh, uh, diverse nature of the, of the sport. So they, they have round the clock coverage. So I think if you look at most of the clips, they're also coming from CBC, not from NBC. Because NBC has this weird thing about their, yes, as Mabuana is saying, they're like a lot, like you were saying for the British BBC, but US is more focused on the US. They don't really have like a world channel for people to follow the world athletes. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to add that on the weekend, what I heard was that uh, NBC facing um, a very, very low viewership has been um, really trying to um, get, like, uh, highlight people. And they were actually getting blamed sometimes uh, for uh, Simone Biles, for example. They said that they were just picking and choosing and saying who was going to win, who was doing great, who's to watch for. 
And they say that even just the China itself put uh, a, a ton of pressure on her and that they have some responsibility. And it was really something to read about. So um, I just wanted to add that um, it, because uh, Tyler was saying that um, some of the things that they, the China itself is doing is, is actually playing against it itself. Okay. Now let's get into some more of these headlines here. Um, Mahogany sent one in. Tyler, yeah, it here. I have some hot news from India. Go. So finally today, uh, PM Modi announced that they are launching something called e-rupee, which is the first step towards the CBDC at 4.30 p.m. India time today. There you go. You heard it here first. So what it tells is like e-rupee is a cashless and contactless digital payment medium which will be delivered to mobile phones of beneficiaries in the form of SMS string or QR code. And then they, this is it's like a prepaid voucher. So they can go to any of these uh, stores or anywhere, and then they, they can just scan it and reuse it. So which means that you don't need a, a credit card, debit card, you don't need an internet bank for this. So it's like they are giving you an e-voucher and then you can redeem it. So here's a question, Ranjant. What is the biggest a fintech app that people can use to pay for things in India? Rupee. Uh, yeah. How, Google Pay. And, uh, and what? Uh, what? Paytm. Paytm. And no. What, how, what's the percentage of the market that uses it? Uh, I don't know about the percentage of uh, the whole market. So every uh, how, how, much, how much there? Oh, you don't know. Well, can you make a guess? Is it ten percent or ninety percent or somewhere in between? I don't know. We can look for it. Okay, because that I, it'll be interesting to see if the rollout of that if it mimics now what China's doing by just partnering with the most utilized system, which is Alipay and WeChat Pay, and essentially forcing them to roll it out on the country. Would, would India be able to do the same? Same. So, Tyler, Rupee's market share, and I'm just checking, uh, uh, is about 50% of all uh, online payment tr transactions. Okay. So, Rupee has issued 317 million people are using Rupee. Okay. Cool. Hey, what's up, Sid? You just yeah. uh, raised your hey, hand. Sid. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I, I've heard phone pay that's Walmart backed is about almost yeah, 50%. phone pay is also huge, it's exactly. 50%, it's the highest, mm. yeah, 47 yeah. point something percent. Google Pay, phone pay, Paytm, yeah, Google, yeah, Google's around 38 ish percent. So, do I you think, and do you think that India, the government, could, could tell them, hey, uh, we're gonna force you to use this new currency? Um, do you think they could do what? How would that be received in, in the case of India? I think this is this is a strategy to bring the unbanked population online and give them access because most people have at least a phone that's SMS enabled. Exactly. And they want to they want to connect the e-commerce uh, market to these unbanked. Right. Um, you know, rural parts yeah, the, of India, the, the, which who are not using Android phones right. and things like that. Yeah. So how will India drive mass complete adoption of the digital rupee, do we think? Because nearly you're going to need a phone for that. And obviously you're going to need an app for that. China started out by no. building their own app and it turned out nobody wanted to use that app. So now they're forcing the popular apps to integrate with their digital currency. 
No, this tells that this doesn't need any app. So you basically get a SMS or a QR code, and then you may let's say that you are going to a, a government office, and you're gonna get some, let's say, rice or any health benefit. So just show this QR code or SMS, and then you get redeemed. That's precisely right, how means- it works in China as well. You show a QR code, but then it withdraws your balance from somewhere, from your actual mm-hmm. bank. Can you not do a prepaid card? Can you not do a prepaid let's card? Not, let's not get unfocused card. here for a second, Heyman. This is an incredibly okay, I important I think it's going to be phone bills. I think it's ah, phone it will bills. charge your phone bill. Geo. Yes, so Geo, I think, is going to be the next announcement. Got it. So they'll force the phone company yeah. to adopt yep. the, the currency. Not force. Not force. Why not? This has already been decided in the background. Well. Mukesh Ambani and Modi have probably already Oh, there you go. This is how they're going to okay. do it. Got it. Yeah, that we are just going to charge the we're just going to charge the phone bill. Mm-hmm. We'll take a 10, 15 percent cut, and the rest will just go to the government. But uh, I prepaid cards. I don't see that aspect in the in the articles. I read like four or five articles uh, now yeah, regarding yeah, this. Yeah, this is probably not reported. I'm just speculating, but that's how it's going to work. That, every that... time, every time the Modi government announces a big financial initiative. Uh, Mukesh Ambani backs it up with some sort of a geo announcement. And... Yeah, but uh, let's say, I mean, from what I read, this is what I understood. Like, let's say that the government has given you uh, that you are you are eligible for buying hundred dollars of uh, food materials uh, from uh, from these shops or uh, the government shops, and they're gonna release a QR code or a SMS string to you, which means like money is nothing. No money is involved in this so you basically go there show this qr code or sms string and get the products which means there is no money involved there is no card uh yeah there is no app involved so if you don't avail it you don't get it yeah but that qr code needs to be backed up by some currency yeah exactly where's the wallet ranjit is this is exactly. This, this is rupee based, of course. This is rupee based, of course. Right. So no, is this it's, free, is it's this not. But there's a wallet somewhere. There's a wallet somewhere. Where's the account? Yeah. Where's the money coming yeah. from? This is the question. Guys, but a QR code requires a smartphone, right? A smartphone that I could actually have that technology. No, no. As Ren just thinks you're going to print it on a piece of paper and walk into the store and just hand him the QR yeah, code exactly. on a piece of paper. Yeah, like well, what about yeah. a prepaid card? Every phone, like all the small flip phones. And, and in fact, he's right. You, you could do that. But then still, the question is, where are they drawing the money from? Yeah, yeah. I just found the article, guys. Okay. Is There's a list of 14 banks that are partnered with this. Okay. The, which banks are alive with eRupee? Okay. Axis, Canara, HDFC, ICICI. There's ni- uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 national, nationalized and private banks. Yep. That are live with eRupee. Yep. So that uh, consumers redeeming the voucher need not have a digital payment app or a bank account. But it is. Uh, da, 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 da. I just tweeted the article. Okay. So AJ in the audience uh, used to work uh, at Now Floats, which is part of Reliance, helping small businesses create digital storefronts. So he, he might have a, a head start on this topic that we're trying to figure out here. The if it's if you, I guess you're right. Ultimately, if all you you don't need an actual app, but you do need a QR code that ties to your bank account so that they can draw from. Uh, but that and then and if it is the if it goes to the bank or your phone, con, you know your phone service, it would make the phone company like like is common in Africa. They kind of become a bank in a way. Um, 
Yeah, and Tyler, there's no problem with smartphones. Geo is just going to start sending free smartphones if you sign up with the Geo account. I mean, that's what yeah. happened so, with AT and T when the iPhone came out. They were selling iPhones for a hundred bucks if you signed up so, for an AT and T account. In India, so the me, phone companies so are already read. acting like banks. Uh, there are there is Airtel and few other companies that are making around the thirty crores and a thousand crores of rupees just by enabling this feature for all the tier two, tier three city uh, urban areas, suburban areas. Yeah. So let me read a quick thing. Uh, eRupee is a cashless and contactless instrument for digital payment. It is a QR code or SMS string-based e-voucher which is delivered to the mobile of the beneficiary. The users of this one-time payment mechanism will be able to redeem the voucher without a card, digital payments app, or even internet banking access at a service provider. It's been developed by the National Payments NPCI, which is the... Uh, yeah. back-end UPI platform. So. That's precisely how the first test was done in China. And they limited it to convenience stores. And Yeah, and NPCI. And NPCI has been at work for almost three years. They've been developing the super advanced API that they can sort of get into any sort of gateway, whether it's a phone, whether it's a screenless phone, anything uh, that may be. So I, I, I think... Eventually, this is all going to converge to a phone service provider or an internet service provider uh, that's going to enable, that's going to maintain your wallet for eRupee. Uh, and the banks will just sort of be compatible. The bank systems will be just compatible. So now here's the question. In Indian citizens, um, if they have these already existing popular methods of payment, and then how, how, what percentage of transactions are done in cash still? And you guess, and you, My guess is got to be 90%. Isn't okay. It depends on the amount of the transaction. Anything under 50,000 rupees, yeah, I'd go with Cal. Uh-huh. It's probably around that number, okay. 80, 90%. But more than that, it's probably uh, more digital so if they're, um, yeah. than so cash. If they're interested, I mean, the state will decide if they want to stop issuing cash and force everybody to use QR codes. That's totally at the government's discretion to do that. And they could literally, as the companies who receive the cash, take it to the banks, the banks send it to the federal bank, the federal bank throws them into a big fire and says, uh, we're replacing these with QR codes. And it'll be interesting to see to what degree they do that. And then if they also have digital forms of um, those digital apps you were referring to that exchange the fiat version of rupees, if they force those apps to abandon fiat and integrate the e-rupee. Question. And I, well, by the way, looking at how they deal with Ma- MasterCard, it seems very likely that they could and maybe even would do that. Tyler, yes. question. Like, how does international exchanges work? Like, I know that the digital yuan is coming out. Now you got the digital rupee. Let's see you're traveling between countries. Like, is there going to be a wallet, a central global wallet that people are going to agree on that we could sort of trans- like transfer, like uh, do the currency transfers on? Yeah, like a an app that will either hold multiple currencies, which is already, those already yeah. exist, and then if you want to convert one into another, of course, uh, anyone will do that. The question is, you know, how 
the exchange rates in that inside of that. I think I think it's it's possible, Tyler, that this e rupee thing is to uh, start developing provenance of cash transactions mm-hmm. so instead of those ninety percent transactions happening in cash. The government wants to build provenance of where how the money is moving. Of course. So the ninety, so the so they will start reducing possible, and this is purely speculation. Of course. You know, I don't live there, but I have, I still have deep roots there. It's uh, they they just want to reduce the amount of uh, fiat, physical currency in circulation, and get this as digital as possible, and enable new e-commerce possibilities. The government starts making more money through different instruments and taxes and cuts and things like that. Yeah, make no, mis- just- make no mistake. When you say 90% is done in cash, that's n- uh, potentially 90% of tax revenue lost. So they, they, ha- they stand to benefit from... Yeah, 90% of a certain amount. I understand. So, so not, yeah. 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 But it- uh, contextually, contextually, a few, uh, a year ago or two years ago, I can't remember exactly contextually, but there was a a removal of a uh, denomination like the uh, and and there was quite quite a lot of riots and pushback right people in india that's, that's if you want to add bit. that context because yeah, that was the reason it was it was at that time it was to 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 do exactly what uh, tyler was alluding to is less uh, you know more transparency and and less uh, uh, you know less of that cash economy basically but there was resistance to that i'm more interested so in this is, uh, when they forced the rupee to abandon fiat and adopt the e-rupee internally and how that goes down. Yeah, so so there's more information coming in at 4.30, but right now what I'm reading, and I've just, I've got two laptops open, I'm reading in both. uh, They're actually the first beneficiaries are or the beneficiaries, the users are going to receive government schemes like uh, uh, the Indian government has a lot of schemes on subsidies and vouchers and that they give the folks and they're going to use that to instead of cash transactions or money transfers they're using it to send that and there's an easy way to track it as it just said so it it brings it into circulation this way okay well let's let's see how how quickly it rolls out and to what what they they certainly have i mean the first first hints that this was coming. I remember it was only four months ago, was it not, Cal, when somebody came and we were trying yeah. to figure out. Yeah, yeah. And Monica was giving us a real, like, in fact, we'll get Monica in the next show. I just tried to but ping her Cal, in. But can we'll you, do that. Can you we'll get a good analysis. Remind yeah. me, there was something interesting that happened. Oh, they stopped um, Bitcoin. There was new proposed legislation where they were going to crack down on Bitcoin. And then some, I believe it was Monica or somebody else in the audience, maybe that was the first time we learned of Monica, where she came in and she's like, yes, actually what's going on is uh, this is actually because secretly, internally, they're working on their own digital currency, and that's why they're stopping Bitcoin. And yeah, that was about four months ago, was it not? Yep, yep, I remember that. So they've a lot of progress, and let's see how, (laughs) how, how it rolls out, because it's interesting to watch China do it because they're the first that are doing it. It'll be very interesting to see India do it, because they're also one of the biggest, but they're also a democracy, so they don't quite have the same level of influence and control that the CCP does. You know, They could just do whatever they want in China, essentially. India, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how a, the world's largest democracy handles this issue, because that will give us a very good indication of you know how other countries are likely to do it. This e ruby, huh? this e ruby is not CBDC, right? It is. I, I read it's not. It's no, not. no, it is. Yeah, it, 
it is not. It is not. No, it's There's not. a difference. No, it's yeah. not. It's not. Oh, what's the difference? Yeah, it is not. Uh, okay, you want me to read? Yeah. Oh, you can look at a DM. I DM you, actually. Okay, let's read it. It's a first step towards it. It's not CBDC, but it's a first step towards it. Central Bank Digital Currency Tracker. Oh, so this may be useful for those. That was from Aaron. Sorry, Aaron. Uh, where is yours, Cheryl? Right here. Where to go, Cheryl? Ah, so here. Let me. Let me I got let it. Me it. I got it right Dream here. Dream team. Dream team. Dream team. Explained. What is e rupee and how does it work? E rupee is a cashless and contactless digital payment medium which will be delivered to mobile phones or beneficiaries in the form of SMS and QR code. And find bank. Uh, if you scroll down, yeah. it's like in paragraph five. Okay. Go. The government's already working on developing a CBDC, and the launch of eRupee could potentially highlight the gaps in digital payments infrastructure that will be necessary for the success of future digital currency. In effect, eRupee is still backed by the existing Indian rupee as the underlying asset. Specificity, mm. specificity of its purpose makes it different to a virtual currency and puts it closer to a voucher-based payment system. Which I think is, in some ways, preferable to a lot of people. Interesting. Uh, and Tyler, this is pretty interesting. They roll it out for these kind of government benefits because then, because there are a huge number of Indian population are dependent on these benefits from the government. So if they roll it out to these these people, this category of people, which means that adoption when it comes to this digital currency will be much smoother. Right, but one of the key differences is this is still essentially it's digital fiat. It's still backed based on the rupee and it's just a digital equivalent of the yeah. existing fiat currency yeah it's not i think it's more similar to prompt pay but different right yeah yeah it's more right. similar it seems incredibly similar to prompt pay in, in southeast asia actually and then the but i guess that's a stepping stone towards um yeah, they say that, yeah, that the Central Bank or the Royal Bank of India still has aspirations to do a CBDC, but then it makes it easier to make that change happen uh, in going through this intermediary baby step, essentially. I I, I now back uh, some of the aspects of what Sid has told. What happens uh, when they cut out this SMS and tomorrow they tell that, okay, everything is QR-based, and then Reliance Geo offers a very cheap phone. And then, you know, it makes sense, right? Right, Sid? Yeah, I think I think this is like, so it's 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 a voucher-based system, right? Like someone was talking about that reading it. So it's definitely going to be like, they want to bring people on who are dependent on government services. This is going to be the payment system. And then you provide everyone a phone that is enabled with this payment system. Uh, and then that's it. Uh, all your healthcare, your, your, you know, the ration shops, which is typically called Karana stores, uh, all government-backed Kirana stores that are getting digitized, all delivery systems, everything. And even this may even become a way of receiving payments. So you can receive payments in e-rupee, not just spend vouchers, but you can receive vouchers. So then you need a wallet. The wallet needs to be compatible with the phone. And then, so it's, it sounds like there's a whole ecosystem in play behind this. This is sort of just a, the foundation to start that ecosystem locally. And then CBDC is going to be more international exposure, right? More outward facing currency than more inward. This sounds more like more of an inward facing currency, which is definitely easier to implement 
in a shorter phase of time. So, Sid, has anyone done a study? Tyler, Ajay here. Sorry. Quick point. Uh, um, so, Reliance already has a phone which is very, very affordable. It's cheaper than the cheapest smartphone. And they have their own OS as well, which is called Kai OS. And this Kai OS is not a feature phone OS. It's got semi-smart features. So this OS is on the lines of what Facebook wanted to do with their free basics uh, project, right? Wherein it's a semi-smartphone, only selected apps are free. Everything else is charged. So it's, it, it, it could be kind of, it could allude to that. Uh, and there's a reason why Facebook bought a significant share in Geo yeah. Infocom yeah. last year. So, and that's, this so there's not many people know. Kai OS has close to about 200 to 300 million users. In tier two, So Aaron just found in a fantastic map. Like, holy cow, is this brilliant. Uh, I just tweeted it out from the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. Uh, it's called the AtlanticCouncil.org. And when you go there... As you sh absolutely should. Holy cow, is this brilliant. So the, the, the main loading screen looks like a big ad. And then you scroll down and you'll see a map of the planet. And it gives the current status of CBDCs in every country where they are in different stages of development. And they are color coded so that you can see which countries are in the research phase, in the development phase, in the pilot phase, in the launched phase or in the canceled phase, as in the case of uh, Senegal, it's canceled, and uh, Ecuador is canceled, and it gives China. And then once you hover over a country, it tells you all kinds of interesting additional data points about the progress in that country. So in the case of China, it says it's CBDC status is pilot, uh, architectures hybrid, infrastructure both, and then cross-border partnerships, Thailand, Hong Kong, UAE, for the China Central Bank Digital Currency is already cross-border partnership with Thailand and UAE, uh, but which, by the way, is where they get their food and their oil. <laughs> so interesting to see. It's so helpful. I've just looked at it. It's so helpful. It's fantastic. <laughs> if... Tyler, look, read, read the key findings. The key findings are very good summary. Mm -hmm. I was just reading it. If I can add, like, it we've says... been working with... Sorry, Cheryl. I was just Sorry, 81 add... countries... 81 countries representing over 90% of the global GDP are now exploring CBDC. Yeah. And that was uh, like since one year ago, it was only 35. Now it's 81. Of course, China is way ahead and U.S. is way behind. According yeah, to Aaron, article. you were going to say something about the, Sorry, uh, the Aaron. share. Yeah. No, yeah. no, absolutely fine, Cheryl. Absolutely fine to highlight the, the findings. Yeah, it's just to highlight. So we, we've been working with Atlantic Council for quite some time and tracking CBDCs. And we've been, um, you know, been researching this for quite some time. Um, the e-rupee, and, and I just think we, we should be careful when we just declare everything a digital currency. Because a CBDC, the important part is not the DC part, it's the CB part. It's a central bank. Right. You know, the e-rupee the, the e here is, is trying to digitize a voucher system. And, and yes, it can grow into a CBDC, but a physical CBDC is is very different. You know, and um, what we've got is companies are sorry, companies, central banks. If they look to back it with a, a physical fiat currency is more like a stable coin where it's something supported by something that's tangible in the market today. But a digital currency, like what the e-rupee is trying to be a digital voucher system, is not yet a CBDC. And so I just think before we start jumping down rabbit holes of calling everything 
um, a CBDC, there are very defined characteristics of the central bank side of it and what they can roll that out. Now, just to be also clear, it doesn't have to be blockchain based. You know, the, the digital yuan is not blockchain based. The, the e-krona, there are certain central banks that will be leveraging a decentralized or sorry, a distributed ledger system like blockchain. But a CBDC doesn't need to be on blockchain. So there's, there's various differences around a CBDC. And hopefully the Atlantic Council paper and the tracker hopefully help uh, educate people on that. By the way, Cal and Cheryl, check out the filters just above the map where you can pick the, the status of you only want to see the pilot locations. And then you can then double filter based on purpose, architecture, infrastructure. And it's absolutely oh, brilliant. Interesting. Whoever built this is brilliant. Thank you for that fantastic share, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, so just tweeted that out. And let's get into... Yeah? Do you mind if I ask one thing? Like, Has anyone looked into the cost of fiat currency versus a digital currency? You know how a lot of countries have gotten rid of their low, small tender, right? like the pennies in the US and Canada. Yeah. Canada got rid of its dollar. Then we transferred to plastic bills, right? Because they last longer. I'm just wondering, has anyone did a calculation about maintaining a fiat currency, like current fiat currency versus a digital currency? Is the cost for maintaining per like you know unit of currency cheaper in the digital realm versus a fiat? I'm just curious about that. That's a little... Yes, 100%. It, um, just, just to quote Ajay Banga, who's a former CEO of MasterCard, um, he had a war against cash payment because, for many reasons, oh. not only, not only from a fraud, from a fraud perspective of where um, cash can be, you know, hidden from from certain aspects and and under the underworld. Um, he also said that the cost of maintaining cash was significantly higher. And I think recently there was even a, a stat from the UK that twenty eight billion pounds of UK physical currency notes has never been seen again. So wow. there's a there's a real issue against physical cash versus digital. And the hope about digital is not just about, you know, reducing the cost. It's also about the immutability, the traceability, so that we can, you know, monitor where this cash is going and try to block it from being spent on bad actors and bad things. And then a follow-up question is, how do we make it rain with digital currency? You know that term, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I'm, I'm, la I'm, I'm laughing here. I think, I think. Listen, there's, there's, there's other things to play here. Like the, the, the MPCI in, in, in India um, was set up to originally challenge, you know, the banking infrastructure. It's actually in support of Mastercard and Visa. I worked on the Barack QR code years ago when we, we gave that technology to, to the NPCI formation, Prompt Pay that Cheryl mentioned in, in Thailand and, and Southeast Asia. Ironically, the technology behind that is Vocalink owned by MasterCard. So when you say make it rain, like it's all these infrastructure players that are actually making it rain behind the scenes. Uh, the Stripes, the MasterCards, the, the people who put in the plumbing. If you, want to, if you want to support the technology going forward, don't get to the people at the front. Get to the people in the back. Whoever's building the plumbing, those are the guys that are making it rain. Okay. Um, the French, um, the, 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 I tweeted it, I think, um, just a few days ago, the French and Tunisian central banks are yeah. also. Yep, we covered that. There, there's, um, we covered that four or so days ago. There, yeah, you're starting to see interesting experiments all over the place. So check out that map. Um, 
you can yeah, it's so <laughs> fantastic so um as here's the next article from the wall street journal <clears throat> as ar evolves it will revolutionize people's lives and become a significant a technology shift as the web or mobile was to society changing how consumers view and interact with the world around them and interesting that they said as big as a shift of the web which was your computer and the mobile web which was your smartphone and indeed it's the third platform you had your computer and then your smartphone now you're gonna have vr and it's essentially the third era so uh on that the next article is from cnbc about chinese augmented reality glass maker and in real spelled n real r-e-a-l Looks to go public within five years. The company's flagship product is a pair of lightweight glasses called InReal Light, which has been released in a handful of markets, including South Korea and Japan. But begs the interesting question, will America let Chinese AR glasses into America? Uh, and it's the whole data issue, of course, all over again. And the cameras and same with TikTok and where the data goes and the data servers and the countries have all woken up and realized that data can be is super super powerful and they don't want other countries having access to data from within about their citizens so it's it's a whole new era <laughs> and the gun the, the governments are you know waking up 20 years late uh, to the power of data but now that they have uh, they're going to act in rather interesting ways that we cover in all of these headlines and disinformation for hire PR firms are the new battleground for Facebook. Facebook's head of security policy has testified before Australian Parliament <clears throat> that his company has witnessed an increasing use of. Pardon me one second. Um, an increasing use of marketing firms or PR agencies that are essentially hired to run disinformation campaigns. Facebook's global head of security policy, Nathaniel Gleicher, or Gleicher, has detailed the new disinformation paradigm his platform is battling with an influx of adversaries using PR or marketing firms to do their bidding. Gleicher told the Select Committee on Foreign Interference through social media that last October, Facebook removed a network that was linked to a marketing firm based in the UAE, Nigeria, and Egypt. The network targeted public debate around the world, primarily in the Middle East and Africa, but with some focus in Australia. There's an increasing use of marketing firms or PR agencies that are essentially running disinformation for higher businesses. You hire them and they run your disinformation campaign, he says. We've seen these around the world. We've seen a couple of them as far back as 2018, but we've seen more use of them lately. Gleicher said Facebook has seen this approach play out in two ways, which the first with the first seeing actors that otherwise wouldn't have the resources or the skills to run an influence operation, hiring a firm to do just that. We've seen smaller local campaigns, for example, not so long ago on, in the Mexican election, a number of operations linked to smaller and local campaigns run by these firms. The second, he says, was a more sophisticated threat using PR firms as a way to launder their identity. When we investigate a CIB operation, our teams work to understand who's behind it. We can't always identify who's behind it, obviously. That can be challenging, but we have a number of tools to, to, to use to expose. For instance, a government is running it or an actor is behind it. But if a government or bad actor hires a PR firm 
they pay them and not Facebook and they don't communicate with them on our platforms. We may be able to track it back to the PR firm, but, but we won't be able to make the connection to the actor behind it. He said the late 2019 operation that targeted Australia had links to three separate marketing firms. I think we should expect more actors to use PR firms and other intermediaries to hide their identity, discussing coordinated inauthentic behavior, uh, which is, that term is called CIB, coordinated inauthentic behavior. Targeting Australia, Gleitra said Facebook had seen three other instances in addition to the disinformation for higher campaigns. In August last year, Facebook was used by an operation that acted primarily in English and Chinese and targeted a number of countries, including Australia, and engage, engaging with users on a range of topics such as COVID-19. Another occurred in March 2019 where there was an operation that appeared to be a financially motivated operation originating from Macedonia and Kosovo targeting users around the world. The final CIB instance was a domestic operation that was linked to some local political actors in New South Wales. We've seen Russian actors run false media organizations and they hired local reporters or freelancers who didn't know any better to write for them, trying to make their voices appear more authentic, trying to have more impact. Ah, so this is the natural. This is a great article. I'm going to tweet it out now from ZDNet. And essentially, to oversimplify it, these bad state actors, as they name Russia here, um, elsewhere, Gleitcher said, uh, Another CIB technique Facebook has been been increasingly seeing, particularly by actors linked to Russia and Iran, is getting groups to directly reach out to reporters and try to trick them into writing stories for them. The idea being, of course, if you can get a reporter to write your false narrative, you already get a whole bunch of public awareness, he said, and we've seen this be successful in the U.S. Okay, so Russia used to make bot farms. That was the original innovation to take advantage of social networks, um, which didn't have verified identities. So you have a computer make thousands and tens of thousands of identities, which are called bots, and the bots speak all kinds of nonsense and spew disinformation and hate and division. And then the platforms figure that out and they clamp down on that. And now that's no longer as effective as it used to be. So the bad actors have had to up their game a little bit. So now they are hiring actual people, firms, to who have accounts and to do their bidding. And the PR firms reach out to journalists to tell these narratives and these stories, and they get paid to do so. And, and then they also are engaging users to motivate them to reach out to uh, journalists to create these stories. And so it's just this natural evolution of um, now that the bot armies are being effectively dealt with to some degree. But again, this speaks to uh, yet another reason why identity, uh, verified identities will be enforced uh, to nip all of this bad behavior um, more directly. So next article is, here's everything you can't get right now from CNN, from Dr. Fran, tacos, coffee, cars, and jet fuel, computer chips, Nike shoes, and school supplies. What do they all have in common? They are all nearly impossible to find or getting there. Shortages are popping up across the supply chain as a pandemic messes with shipping, demand, supply, and all other 
levers of the global economy. Oh, CNN with your with your pop ups. One expert said the pervasive shortage might last well into 2022. Here's what's hard to get. Why and for how long, according to CNN business reporters, cars are going to be difficult. Coffee, as I mentioned, um, your morning cup of joe might soon get more expensive because of the supply shortages recently caused by bad weather in Brazil. And that's interesting in, a, in and of itself of the climate change and water scarcity is going to start having impacts in our supply chains in the very near future. Uh, computer chips, obviously, we talk about that endlessly. Jet fuel, Nike shoes. Nike could run out of the sneaker it sources from Vietnam as the spread of COVID-19 accelerates in the region. There you go. School supplies. Um, what we're likely to see is a more limited choice and lower stock levels towards the end of the back to the school period. Some consumers might inevitably miss out category. Uh, although parents, what is the cause of the school supply shortage? Um, the demand is also coming up against tight inventory levels and delayed shipments, which will impact retailers ability to replenish products on shelves. Taco Bell fans are having a hard time um, <laughs> living more as the Taco Bell saying, you know, slogan um, the popular food chain said that some of its customers' favorite items might not be available at U.S. restaurants. Apologies for the inconvenience as we hope to feed fans' current Taco Bell cravings again soon. Uh, the fast food chain expressed regrets on its website, saying that because of national ingredient shortages and delivery delays, some locations might not be able to serve customers. So to summarize, it's yeah. It's interesting they didn't say what the ingredients were. It's still a mystery. Yeah. What are they... Yeah, there's a shortage of mystery meat. Tacos, coffee, cars, jet fuel, computer chips, and Nike shoes and school supplies. All in short supply. Great article. And what else do we got? We've got teachers are feeling burned out. Artificial intelligence can help. Oh, boy, that's a slippery slope. Te this is from USA Today. Teachers can use technology to help them focus more of their time on education rather than administration. Indeed. And eventually it'll replace the teachers themselves. And in fact, my buddy Joel Hellerman in Stockholm doing sauna labs claims that their AI driven learning system teaches people to learn in half the time with three times the retention. So, and of course, it's they're focusing on nurses and enterprise use cases today because it's impossible to partner with the education systems directly because they're so freaking antiquated. And it's an existential threat to them, but they will have their day of reckoning and we will eventually learn by AIs and VR at five times the speed and ten times the retention. So, um, Walmart names Wignesarum to fill chief medical officer vacancy and the interesting part in that headline is that walmart has a chief medical officer <laughs> vacancy and even a chief medical officer walmart named pharmaceutical industry veteran joe wigneswaram as its new chief medical officer and that's all you need to know that walmart is entering the huge medtech race with amazon and google and or pharmacy yeah no, it's, I think a potential and a potential there. acquisition um, yeah. may may emerge um, of one of these pharma pharma. What do you call them in the U.S. Pharma benefit? Uh, uh, one of these organizations that supply pharmacies, basically. Yeah. So 
next next big article here is from ZDNet from Wendy Marks. Thank you, Wendy. Disinformation for hire. We just did that one. Sorry. The next big one's from Faraz from Bloomberg. Uh, and the headline reads, Sell tech, buy green is Wall Street's new playbook for trading in China. Sell businesses that politicians want to reform and buy the ones they want to build, like green tech. That's the advice coming from Wall Street. Sounds smart. Next headline from Vinay. Um, MasterCard submits new report to Royal Bank of India seeking overturn of uh, the temporary ban that they're suffering about kind of data storage compliance issues. That seems inevitable, but MasterCard now submits a new report seeking an overturn. Good luck with that. The next one from Cheryl through Reuters is that thousands of people protested in Paris and other French cities against mandatory coronavirus health paths for entry to many public venues now for the third week in a row. Comments from the stage on the third weekend of very large-scale protests now and happening in Paris against the uh, vaccine passport to enter cafes and trains and whatnot. Going once, going twice. There's also an uh, article that I, I'm not sure they forwarded to yet, but it's basically about the fact that people are arguing against vaccine passports. Yeah. But there's also this uh, statement about why people are not arguing for. There's not much argument for the vaccine passports, at least from the global uh, academic and also public health sense. They're just saying we need it, but there's no good arguments yet. I know it seems common sense, but I think, yeah. It's just a, a story that broke out in Canada. I could forward it to you again. Interesting question. I think um, that takes um, knowledge that your average person doesn't quite have, is the short I answer. I think cross-border vaccine passport will be very difficult to implement. For example, a country yeah. like Japan, they are negotiating for it. So far, there's only five countries that, uh, you know, uh, allow them uh, with the unilateral, meaning to say that those people from Japan can enter those countries without having to test or quarantine. But if they those countries, uh, the people from those countries want to come to Japan, they still have to be quarantined and tested. So, it's like existing so it's visa unilateral. requirements right, for countries. It's like existing visa requirements for certain countries. And also with the, like, the different countries <laughs> and their different uh, vaccines that have been approved, it makes it difficult to cross. Because for instance, Canadians can attend certain concerts if they have non-U.S. approved vaccines, such as AstraZeneca, which is not approved in the U.S. Or even for emergency use, it's not hasn't been approved in uh, the U.S. So it just sort of blocks a lot of people. It's just odd. Well, you might see people asking what an interesting thought is. Well, there's a headline coming up in a minute that Joe Biden's now encouraging states everywhere to offer $100 incentives to get people vaccinated. And that, into, yeah. to my mind, raises the question, uh, the stimulus that, pe that the U.S. gave out of these $1,200 checks or $1,500 checks, um, why weren't those tied to vaccinations? But you know, the sad part is like a lot of the world does not have a vaccine and we're forcing people in the first world to actually get a vaccine and we're paying them to get a vaccine. And $100 is a lot of money for anyone around the world. I mean, for certain parts of the world and they're desperate for vaccines. So it's just a, 
very sort of, I don't know what the word is, but it's just sickening sort of to see all that. Even in Canada, we don't have those. We had lottery incentive, actually. In Alberta, which is a conservative province, we had a lottery, 10 lottery tickets were given out of $1 million uh, to for people who vaccinated. So, I don't know. Okay. Tyler. Yeah. Tyler. There is a, there was an interesting article that came out last Friday from the EU, from the Schengen region. Yep. And it outlines the expectations of what's going to be done. And clearly, they're also being very diplomatic about not stepping on the rights of people. And what they're saying is there's 16 countries that are on this Schengen, in the Schengen region. And what they ultimately are doing is they're saying here that for the most part, you're fully vaccinated for two weeks or more. You have been infected with coronavirus in the past six months. You can show a PCR test with a negative result. It's got to be valid for the following two days. And also they will accept a rapid antigen test. And the unique part about accepting that last one right there, which is really fascinating, I know Netherlands and Germany have really taken this on board, and it's, it's actually something I really like, is that many of the people are taking the responsibility between Germany and Netherlands to actually buy those, piece, those rapid antigen tests because they're being sold. Like, I could buy a box of 50 from a medical, a medical location, and what people are doing is, is taking the responsibility to say, hey, if you want to engage in a party or if you're coming over my house, I want you to take that test first and bring it back with proof that your, your test is negative. And that's how people are engaging. Specifically, I know in Netherlands they're engaging that way a lot, and they're engaging that way in Germany as well because it's already happened a couple of times. So I think that in, in Europe, at least in Germany, Netherlands and Belgium, People are really take. They're just making the investment into the PCR test and the negative result test if they're not vaccinated yet. But to Heyman's point, what's very interesting is you can't take away the person's like right as a citizen. You know what I'm saying? That's the challenge here. And they're incentivizing people to take the test by paying. Like the PCR test in Holland is free for the summer because so many of them are traveling now. And the thing is, is that. When you see how the Dutch travel, they go everywhere. And they're taking these tests and they go everywhere. But they're also very uh, resistant and sort of stubborn to say, hey, I don't want to be forced to take a vaccine, but I'm happy to pay money to take a PCR test or rapid antigen. But to the point of what everyone's saying in all these countries, the 16 of them, is that it's going to be specifically to those events that are also really large, where there's clusters, as Heyman has said, it also depends on the viral load like outdoor concerts and festivals. So those are going to be requiring it. And ironically, in a country like Netherlands that has 900 music festivals a summer, they've lost a lot of money because that's like their cash cow. You could fall over a festival in the summer here. It's like they do 30 festival, they do 30 festivals a day all over the country. It's crazy. But they're losing a lot. But that's also why people are like, I'm getting vaccinated because they want to go to these concerts, but the festivals are also been shut down. So it's kind of like, okay, where do we go now? There's no festivals. The schools are getting concerned because September's right around the corner. So I just think this is going to be very, very interesting over the next like 30 to 60, 90 days on how this will impact the, the countries and also the, the travel. And also what Cheryl, said is very, what Cheryl said is very, very valid. What Netherlands does is not what Germany does. What Austria does is not what Netherlands and Germany does. But they have to cross border. And if cross-border is going to bring business, they have to be very uh, diplomatic on how they set that, set that in place. 
They have to be very diplomatic because they could also lose business. And Europe is, doesn't have a lot of influx of business other than when tourists come in to visit. So Netherlands has said, okay, fuck it. We've got to have tourists come in because our, our horikas, which are the businesses, are getting screwed because they're all, people don't even want to work in them. So let alone not having tourists come in to support them. But now they're having even trouble getting employees to work in these horikas. So I think it's just a complete cluster poop. And at that point, I think it's going to be very interesting how they tiptoe forward with um, getting the vaccine rollout to move forward swiftly yeah. so that and it also, doesn't run into a hiccup again. And to Amy's point, too, we'll soon have some results about how these large concerts will affect people because the Lollapalooza, right? Everyone saw that in the U.S. I mean, I'm sure like in two weeks time, we'll figure out how bad that was or not. Some results hopefully will come so out. So somebody... Professor X, we just have to ask Michael. Michael's been having mansion parties. Ask yeah, Michael in the second... Ask Michael in the second, okay. uh, in the second event of Tech News Around the World because he's and been he's really socializing. He's really socializing a lot. He's hacking it. And I told him, I asked him because I saw and his he's uh, literally his hacking it. He's literally he's hacking, literally it, hacking it. Like, honestly, we <laughs> so need to ask him how he's doing. Coughing and stuff. There's um, some, uh, Poppy just shared a map of the COVID vaccine map of how countries are doing around the world from The Guardian. And I believe I just tweeted it out. Yes, I did. At Tech News Twitter account, TNATW. And it shows the kind of penetration of maps uh, of populations around the world that have been vaccinated and Africa has not been vaccinated and uh, neither has the Middle East and or Southeast Asia with the exception of uh, Cambodia. Um, Europe has, America has, quite a bit of South America has, but Africa and the Middle East have not with the exception of Saudi Arabia. And so you got to you really should see this map so you get a sense of where and where the vaccines have been happening. And then notice that the ones in Asia, which are China and Mongolia and a bit of India, uh, well, in the case of China, Mongolia, that's Sinovac, which is now proving to be rather ineffective against Delta, which they are now getting. And that's a headline we're watching with intense interest, which is the spread of Delta in China. That's going to be amazing to watch. Um, and Tyler, to bring the full story back to what you were talking about, the inventory stocks. Hmm. One thing you guys will realize in all our, like at least in the West, what we're realizing is that most of that inventory, even on Amazon, if you look at it, all the stuff that have been sitting in warehouses for ages is now coming onto market because the problem is they cannot make any of the new stuff in time. So there actually, I spoke to a pet store recently nearby and their shelves are bare. And I was speaking to the manager there. They, she said, basically, they're bringing stuff that's been sitting in their warehouses for years and they're putting it on their shelves. And so uh, in the short term, especially the workers around the world who are creating these things, um, like especially if we don't get vaccinations to them and get their economies up online, the West, I mean, unfortunately, uh, will see the effects, even if they feel that they're fully vaccinated, unless they build up their own endemic uh, industries. That's not going to happen. In the short yeah, term. you want your Nike shoes, you know, yeah. Start thinking about the world. Right. Yes. So uh, we just shoes, heard a headline. It, right? We just heard the headline on Nike yeah. shoes. A quick yeah. clarification that, that in the Middle East, uh, the United Arab Emirates is the absolute A student standout um, with their vaccinations, um, even globally. And but just geographically, that's an incredibly small piece of geography in the Middle East. So it was hard to notice that first. And most of the and most of the tenants, most of the people in UAE are non UAE, right? I think what percentage? Fair I'm point. Sure they have a high immigrant population. Yeah. yeah. 
So next big article is also from Poppy uh, from Forbes that e-commerce inflation online prices are up 2.3% over the last year. Disruptions caused by the pandemic have reversed a long trend of declining e-commerce prices and caused what are expected to be ongoing price increases. And uh, Tech Unicorn, this one from Singapore, Straight Times, Tech, tech unicorns ride digital wave to race ahead in India and South Asia as a record 18 startups become unicorns this year, most of them in fintech software services and e-commerce. And I love that India is counting every new unicorn this year with 18 this year. Um, the next one is quite funny from Poland. Um, Bitcoin uh, crypto mining operation uncovered. Uh, at police headquarters, police Polish police say they have uncovered a Bitcoin mining operation in their own headquarters in Warsaw. <laughs> oh, where's Magda? Where's Magda? What, what were they thinking with the uh, with the energy bills? Right, like oh, we just had a spike. It's it's coming from inside the building. <laughs> That's classic, it's, right there. It's like a, a Bitcoin horror 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 movie. He's inside the building. It's like scary movie one, two, and three for Bitcoin. The call's coming from inside the house. The the safest place is the most dangerous place. (laughs) The most dangerous place is the safest place over here. My mother's Polish, so I'll go ahead and make the Polish joke. It's just like... Yeah, the you're right, Cheryl. It's like where where should we run our operation? Let's run it inside the police station. It's the last place they'll think to look for it. But isn't that the way people like? Isn't that the way to hide it in plain sight? You know, isn't that it? Like people are looking at all these other yes. places, but hide it in it's plain so sight. So fantastic. And people tend to avoid it. I love this article. Oh, um, and it does. I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time in Poland. It's absolutely my favorite place to visit because of my kind of family roots there. And it's like, but that does fit with Poland in general. It's like the most, it's a comedy show in and of itself. So the next one is uh, BMW doubles down on AR and VR technology in recent projects. When you think VR and AR, you might not think of BMW. However, BMW's address book has become a who's who of AR and VR firms. And at BMW, we want to ensure that we introduce digital tools in a way that really help prospective customers along their decision journey when choosing a car while ensuring it's fun and user-friendly. So it seems like it's the marketing department driving that one, no pun intended. And then Vinay sent in one that climate, this is from Time, Time says a headline that climate, not conflict, in Madagascar's famine is the first in modern history to be solely caused by global warming. And I didn't realize that Madagascar is facing famine, but we had a headline last week um, from the UN uh, that we are now, there's a mind uh, stomach turning a mind blowing and stomach turning number of people are facing famine in the next 6 to 12 months it was i believe it was 140 million somebody remember the headline anyway um madagascar's famine is the first in modern history to be caused by climate change alone <laughs> and it's unlikely to be the last is the headline from time that i just retweeted so i'm going to save that one for myself to read that 
and then Faraz giving us an update on the oil tanker attack in the Arabian Sea, which was attacked by drones. Two crew members, a British and a Romanian citizen, are killed in an incident off the coast of Oman. Israel now blaming Iran for the drone attack. And where it was, these are obviously a little tricky to figure out now that drones are being militarized and used in this, in this case, attacking an oil tanker, which, holy cow, imagine if the explosive had managed to get to the oil itself, that thing would have turned into the world's largest uh, oil fire uh, through a drone. Qu- quite a concerning development. Thinking of that now, it's actually uh, amazing what what an an unimaginable um tragedy seemingly um how how much worse that could have been because that oil stuff uh is rather flammable i hear so frost also has this one from reuters u.s covid19 residential eviction ban set to expire at midnight august 1st so it says uh now 7 million uh, likely to go homeless as the, it, the a pandemic-related U.S. government ban on residential evictions was set to expire at midnight on Saturday, putting 7 million American renters at risk of becoming homeless. Anyone have a, have a interesting solution? And it, by the way, that's 7 million right now. There's another... 35-ish million who say they don't have money for the next month's rent. So you're now talking about 40 million people expected to become homeless in the next month or so because now they can be evicted if they can't pay the rent and there's another 30 million who say they don't have enough money for rent next month. So hence, um, yeah, maybe the vaccine incentive program could could have been really smart. You uh, Get vaccinated, get your rent covered. There you go. There's an idea. Because the government could do that. They could say, no, we're going to extend the, you can't evict somebody if they get vaccinated, perhaps, or something like that. There you go. Anyway, um, Mercedes-Benz to unveil what they call the EU, the EQE, the first AMG electric and several new EVs um, at the mobility show in Munich. So get ready for all of the new electric Mercedes coming out. And by the way, they launched the very first electric Mercedes uh, in a partnership with me at my event in Stockholm. And that was uh, the EQ SUV. And that was They chose Stockholm of all places to launch it. And my event, all others to partner with it, I was quite honored. Anyway, um, as Coca-Cola auctions its first NFT, more brands are entering the metaverse. And indeed, the entire every marketing department on the planet is trying to figure out how to deal with NFTs and the metaverse. And this headline, this article from Forbes is all about that. The beverage giant is tapping into its history of collectibles with new digital twist to raise money for Special Olympics International. And the next one is from Big Zo uh, uh, from Yahoo. It says... Airlines like United and American are dedicating billions of dollars to fly uh, a new aircraft, these electric aircrafts, essentially. The two airlines aim to be at the forefront of a burgeoning industry, but the greatest hurdle might be getting travelers to fly on the new aircraft. And you can get a look at it. It's quite uh, quite sexy. And it's this whole vertical takeoff and landing phenomena 
Count me in. I cannot wait. U.S. President Joe Biden has called for states to offer $100 to newly vaccinated in an effort to address flagging jab rates amid virus surge. With Florida now now leading, boy, who who could have predicted that? I wonder if anyone on stage was warning, yelling, shouting, even claiming southern states that were bragging about how impervious they were to COVID. They are now leading in COVID cases. Yeah, good times, Florida. Well done, you did it, Florida. I, I think one. Of, I think one of the uh, quotes was from. Um, from uh, the, the the person that has been warning us quite a lot, it was uh, uh, watch the f out, like just watch <laughs> watch this effing thing coming at you, and, and I mean that's just one of them. And I'm serious, like we you literally two months ago because of your on the ground in Lakeisha as well on the ground experiences, you guys were saying, look, guys, this is coming. Let me give you an right? update. Let me just give you the, yeah. let, let let me as the person who was the the Nostradamus of Delta. Del- Deltradamus, as <laughs> as you can call me. That's, that's the title. The Deltradamus. Um, Myanmar, next door to Thailand, is now expecting 50% of people to have Delta. Half the country has Delta. So, Florida, uh, I realize you think you're special people, American exceptionalism. You know, I got, let me, let me play your soundtrack right here, baby. Let's jump, let's jump the drawbridge, Florida. Let's do this. Uh, but your cra- your car is going to crash and burn. Ba- Boss Hog is going to catch y'all. And y'all going to jail. You're going to get the COVID. Okay? So. And going over the bridge is not going to help yeah, you. Yeah, jumping the drawbridge <laughs> in the General Lee ain't going to save you from the COVID. So I saw a headline over the weekend that I did not tweet. But it was specific to the state of Missouri where people who were planning to now get vaccinated, we're dressing up in disguises so that people in the community did not recognize them. I mean, that's how deep the social pressure in some circles is for people not to get vaccinated in the U.S. And all I could think of was only in America. Meanwhile, I was, I was coming from the supermarket the other day, you know, back to my little village, and I saw an only in Thailand kind of visual where there were four people riding in the back of a pickup truck, which is very Thai and it happens in many, many places. You, you, they, around hang the on, they weren't riding they were weren't riding on top of the truck? No, this was just a regular pickup <laughs> truck. So they weren't riding on like a stack of like bananas that were, yeah. you know, being hauled across Spilling the Spilling out of the side so, of the truck. They, yeah. were, they were riding in the back of the pickup truck wearing white hazmat suits masks, you know, with a helmet. And it struck me as being something out of, um, what was that Stevens? Um, right? No, 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 no. The, the one about the aliens, like in the late 70s, early 80s. But um, anyway, close encounters of the third kind, right? Where people, are, it's like this, people riding in the back of a pickup truck, absolutely natural in Thailand. But people riding in the back of a hazmat, or in <laughs> the back of a pickup wearing hazmat suits, not normal no. at all, but it's sadly becoming increasingly, um, yeah, mm. it's scary. It's frightening. It's frightening. Yep. So next big headline here is uh, from Ken via the New York Post that LinkedIn 
says most employees can work from home forever. The majority of LinkedIn's 16,000 employees will be allowed to work remotely full time. The company said Thursday, I need to start making a list of these people reaching out to their HR departments and uh, working with the Thai government to relocate them here. So, um, yeah. Um, but because they, in the, in a year from now, they're also going to get an update that their salaries have been cut in half because they've been, uh, they can now employ from anywhere as well. And to those people who stay in, you know, California, um, good luck, um, competing with people from Romania and Vietnam. So the next article is the fungus and bacteria tackling plastic waste from the BBC. Uh, bacteria, fungus, and enzymes can all digest plastic, but can they work at a useful commercial scale? Well, that begs an interesting point. And somebody had a headline that I hopefully get to soon about a um, somebody had figured out a way to take kind of the waste of this this weed underwater weed that's growing. I think uh, Cheryl shared the article, and essentially chop it up and use it as fuel essentially because you can kind of burn it and right cheryl and so yeah. yes that's right i think it's in kenya right? yeah i think it was kenya so the these kenyans yeah. have found this weed that's growing underwater and they it's like seaweed and you throw the seaweed into this special chopper you chop it up you burn it like a fuel like charcoal and you have you know fuel you can burn fire you know uh do cook on top of it I, yeah 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 i think they can even use it as a cooking oil they say right yeah but the point is, I don't know how it tastes like we that. had a headline a week or so ago that in Turkey, they're having these massive algae blooms. And by the way, it, near Cancun, they have these and that whole part of the world down there near Cancun. The shores are covered in seaweed, what they call sawgrass. And um, I wonder if they could use that as a potential product, of course, if they can come up with some interesting use case, because you're going to start seeing algae blooms and and. Uh, um, seaweed explosions of biblical proportions when the ocean waters are starting to even rise by, you know, a very small amounts. We're already starting to see it. So um, that's a, there's a huge opportunity there for somebody. So the next headline is from Poppy via the Washington Post that you're going to be asked to prove your vaccination status. Here's how to do it. There's no be-all, end-all way to carry proof of vaccination on your phone. We make sense of how to do it, and that article will do that deep dive for you. France sees third weekend of protests against obligatory health pass. More than 150,000 demonstrators are expected to take to the streets across France on Saturday. Uh, very few of them wearing masks because uh, they're not uh, in favor of vaccines to begin with. So, yeah, Delta in France. Hmm, I wonder. I wonder how that's going to work out with 150,000 demonstrators shoulder to shoulder protesting vaccines. And hmm, that, that'll end well. So um, avoid France for the time being. And then the GA uh, from the Washington Post, the GAO denies Jeff Bezos attempts to overturn NASA's Lunar Lander Award to SpaceX. And they said NASA's decision to award the contract to SpaceX was reasonable and consistent with applicable procurement law and regulations. And Elon Musk, uh, speaking speak of the devil, Washington Journal says Elon Musk just sided with or against Apple in one of the biggest tech showdowns of the century. 
um, where he supports Epic Games, maker of Fortnite, in their case against Apple of the 30% fees that they charge. And Elon described it as uh, a de facto tax on the Internet. And then the Washington Post article that China built the world's largest facial recognition system, which was since time. Now it's getting camera shy is the headline. And what do they mean? Well, let's crack this little sucker open. I just tweeted it out to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. And it shows a photo of an individual scanning their face to enter um, at the entry gate at the World Artificial Intelligence Conference in Shanghai. But to enter, you just scan your face to enter the event. And that's becoming more common. And now people are getting worried, or more specifically, the government's getting worried. And now the government's telling private companies that they must get the users kind of they must warn the users that they're using this technology. But of course, the state doesn't need to warn you that they're using it, but they're, they're very clear that they're using it. So again, kudos to China for their transparency of their um, use of technology um, with their populace. And then the next one's from also from the Washington Post from Bobby. Many ransomware attacks go unreported. The FBI and Congress want to change that. And Lake Mead, Hoover Dam, face historically low water levels amid drought. Lake Mead's depth is the lowest it's been since 1937. And just, boy, it's only the beginning of August. You've only got, you know, two more months of drying up to do. Let's see if there's any lake left at all by the end of September. That Because that's the path that it's on. And indeed, the next article says 40 million Americans depend on two reservoirs that are about to go dry. 40 million. Only just 40 million Americans need this water. And it's going away. Uh, this And guess what? Canadians are scared about. American Canadians are scared under the NAFTA that America can will come and take their water. Well, I thought you were going to you're worried about American climate refugees, water refugees coming oh, moving true. to Canada. No, we're not worried about that. We're not worried about that. We're just worried about you guys not taking care of your water and then demanding the water be shipped down. Relentless drought threatens the Colorado River reservoirs at Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which together provide water to over 40 million Americans, um, large, largely South uh, South California, Southern California, uh, a, a true paradise where I'm from, coming becoming uninhabitable. Let those words sink into you. Try, just try it. T- feel them on your lips like a fine wine. Uninhabitable. You can just try. You can feel the B and the P and the T. It just it has a nice flow. Uninhabitable. It's a desert. You will have no water. There's no water to be had. How are you going to live there when you don't have any water? Uninhabitable is the word you're looking for. You don't, you won't, what happens? To, you won't have water. What happens to a semiconductor with all the water requirements? All the new sh- buildings they're Mesa, building. Arizona. Good question, Heyman. Yeah. That's really good because we're moving them back, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, very good question, actually. Artificial intelligence can now be recognized as an inventor after historic Australian court decision because an AI filed a patent, won the patent, and now an AI can be an inventor. Mark Zuckerberg is building the wrong metaverse, according to a tech journalist who probably has never been there, uh, from Forbes. Uh, Paul Tassi, senior contributor, says... 
that Mark Zuckerberg's building the wrong metaverse. This week, Facebook announced it would be devoting billions of dollars towards Mark Zuckerberg's new goal of becoming a metaverse company as he and many other tech giants scramble to get on board with the next evolution of the Internet and social interaction borrowed from science fiction novels. But given everything I've heard from Mark Zuckerberg, it sounds like he's taking the wrong path to reach the metaverse. And he doesn't seem to realize that many others are well ahead of him already. And the science fi the sci-fi novels the term is borrowed from, the metaverse is a shared virtual world accessed by fully integrated VR, whether that's in Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, where the term was originated, or Ernst Klein's Ready Player One, which it's instead called the Oasis in Zuckerberg's telling he believes that his own Oculus VR tech will be the gateway to help build the metaverse to come. And then they give a very big quote from Zuck, which says what virtual and augmented reality can do and that the metaverse broadly is going to help people experiment experience is a sense of presence that I think is just going to be more natural in the way that we are made to interact. And I think it will be more comfortable, especially for people with on the spectrum and uh, with um, Asperger's, of course, and interactions that we have will be a lot richer. They they'll feel real. In the future, instead of just doing this over the phone call, you'll be able to sit as a hologram on my couch or I'll be able to sit as a hologram on your couch and it'll actually feel like we're in the same place even if we're in different states or hundreds of miles apart. So I think that is really powerful. But back to the journalist who wrote the article, he says that VR is at the core of how Mark Zuckerberg defines the metaverse in general. And the main problem with Zuckerberg's metaverse concept is how heavily he's leaning into the necessity of VR and AR. The reality is that Zuckerberg is skipping several steps along the way, ignoring the fact that despite years on the market, VR has yet to approach anything like widespread mainstream adoption. It's estimated that new headsets like Oculus uh, sell millions of units a year, but Facebook has yet to release hard sales data for it. And the tech is absolutely dwarfed, not just by every video game console on the market, but PCs, tablets, and mobile devices. Mark Zuckerberg's trying to build the metaverse with tech in exactly the vein of those sci-fi books, ignoring the reality of the market and seemingly many challenges VR still endures for mass adoption after all this time. And I can't even bother to read this guy's nonsense. Holy shit. He even admits he doesn't have the data and Mark does and Mark's the guy building it and you're not. And why are you even trying to have an argument against with somebody who has the data when you don't? Paul Tassie, please stop. Just stop, Paul. Tyler, he's a senior contributor. Paul, Paul, just stop. Mark Zuckerberg's building the wrong metaverse that he hasn't even built yet, Paul. Do you realize? Do you realize how kind of silly that sounds that he's building the wrong metaverse that he hasn't built yet? Right, Paul? Hello, Paul. Let's think about this for a second. He hasn't built it yet. Paul and AI. He has Mark's not yet built it yet, but he's building the wrong one that he hasn't built yet. That you don't know what he's going to build because he's you've not yet had an interview with them and no one knows because we're all reading everything Mark says. And they have the data of how many units they've sold and you don't, and you admitted you don't. And you're, you're saying it's too early, but he's got the data and you don't. And you're trying to argue with someone who has the data when you don't Paul, Paul, let's think, let's think this through a little bit, shall we? Okay. Next article. Um, 
going at it here. Cal, you had this one. Walmart names the oh, you 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 shared the same one that we talked about about the uh, yeah, we've already done we that, did one. that one. Yeah. And what else we got here? China's appetite for membership only retailers grows as uh, the middle class emerges. And China's membership-only retailers flourish despite growing pressure on brick-and-mortar stores. And indeed, the membership stores like Sam's Club, right, is what this is in reference to, and Costco. And indeed, that model is absolutely flourishing. Um, because you buy in massive bulk and you get incredible value that you can't get uh, even online. Yeah, it is all about Sam's Club and Costco. Essentially, the article says membership only bulk retailers are growing in popularity in China's big cities, catering to increasingly wealthy and selective consumer population. But it's unclear whether the model has large scale appeal due, due to its relatively high price points and increasing competition from e-commerce stores. So there you go. And then the next one is, let's see here. From YouTube, Sky News Australia barred for barred, barred for a week by YouTube over COVID misinformation. And Sky News is no small outlet in Australia. In fact, it's one of the biggest. And they've been barred for a week by YouTube for COVID misinformation. And Donish... They are owned by Fox, right? Yeah, owned by as, uh, Rupert Murdoch, yeah. Um, from Dr. Donish had one from... Yahoo Finance about AbV expects Botox boom to power annual earnings. I guess they are the maker of Botox. And now that, by the way, you know the in the news realm, a Bild in Germany, the German uh, newspaper yeah. or news organization, yep. they apologized for their years-long uh, stories about negative stories about COVID. They actually apologized. Uh, I just tweeted out to you, but it's they apologized and they're wondering whether other stations will follow suit. Hmm. Okay, and then the next big ones, um, Donish has a couple here. One that says, kind of breaking, D.C. Mayor Bowser officiates maskless indoor wedding. Okay, and then Zoom settles a consumer claims for $85 million to get out of a big, uh, um, what do you call those, class action lawsuit. And then Anna Marie has one that the Swedish health tech startup Doctor.se secures $50 million uh, from Tencent. And that's uh, one of China's big tech companies investing in a European health tech company. There you go. But they're a, a super data company. And Cheryl has one here, a fake $1.3 million pumpkin sculpture was spun into a lavish lifestyle of private jets and Rolex watches by the German socialite. What, what the hell is that about, Cheryl? It's Kusuma Pumpkins, very, very famous artist from Japan. The whole world knows her. Uh, she had a collaboration with LV as well. Okay. You don't know Kusuma? No. Okay, never mind. Okay. okay. You don't know, do you know Naoshima? Naoshima. Yeah, the artistic island of Okayama. It's obviously an island. It's, it ends in Shima, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. You don't know. I, Never mind. It's okay. Okay. Um, so then, what, Cheryl, you have a few here. India's entrepreneurs are burdened by a welter of regulations, high taxes, and capricious government that can change the rules of the game at a moment's notice, according to Rupa Subramanyana. Uh, so sounds like Indians 
also feel they're not that uh, they are uh, have a similarity with Chinese entrepreneurs in, in in a feeling that the government can change the rules at any moment. I, I think MasterCard might agree with them. And uh, Samsung takes Intel chip seller crown, uh, but a bigger showdown looms. And that's from Ken from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, hundreds of AI tools have been built to catch COVID, but none of them have helped, according to the MIT. Thanks to Evan for that one. Some have been used in hospitals despite not being properly tested, but COVID could help make AI better. And there's this new kind of box called a Terra boxes that now uh, as a container like boxes generate solar energy from electricity and sand to help fight climate change and uh, to uh, within the earth's deserts and lab grown technology extends far beyond meat to diamond and trees and even human bones according to uh, our friend Evan through uh, geneticliteracyproject.org where they're now starting to make all kinds of interesting things through uh, in the labs, not just chicken and beef. A Tesla owner in Norway suffers unconsciousness while driving. Tesla autopilot detects it, slows down, comes to a stop so emergency medical systems can help. And this was all caught on camera. And I just tweeted it out. And one Tesla driver pulls up besides another Tesla driver and notices that the driver is uh, passed out. Uh, unconscious, an older gentleman at the wheel, totally unconscious. And I guess the Tesla itself realized that the driver was passed out. And so the Tesla slowed itself down in the middle of a tunnel. And you can see this all on film now. Fantastic footage. Really cool. And the next one is um, Square announces its plans to acquire Afterpay. That was the first big article of the day. And then a lot of people sharing that one and uh, a story from CNBC about how a 30 year old became Australia's youngest self-made billionaire during the pandemic named Nick Molnar has captured has catapulted to billionaire status under under the pandemic following the runaway sex of his buy now pay later, which he's just sold to uh, Square (laughs) 30 years old. Not bad. And Evan and everyone tweeting that one in today. And Vinay, you had this one about panic is suddenly spreading amongst Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other crypto traders. Crypto traders are feeling nervous due to the $550 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill that's currently making its way through the U.S. Why, Vinay? Is Vinay still with us? He's on stage, but I think he's probably multitasking. Ah. So why is the infrastructure bill panicking crypto folks? Let's see. It says Bitcoin and cryptocurrency prices have soared this weekend. The Bitcoin price climbed to 43. However, many crypto traders are feeling increasingly nervous due to the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's currently making its way through the U.S. legislature and includes a provision to raise $28 billion from crypto investors. Ah, that's why. With some warning, it could kill the industry. Ah, they're going to start taxing you. There you go. Game over. Was fun. And the New York Times um, has an article that says pandemic aid programs spur a record drop in poverty. The most comprehensive study yet of the federal response to the pandemic shows huge but temporary benefits for the poor. 
and helps frame the larger conversation around universal basic income, essentially. Uh, because a lot of people got a lot of um, aid during the pandemic to keep 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 the keep the food on the table, and interesting to see if that could evolve into um, universal basic income. Doctor Donish has one from the Washington Post about why young people are using preventative Botox and what they need to know. Preventative Botox can be a safe and effective, but there is a potential risk. And experts say the injections aren't the only way to maintain a healthful look. Um, but it's essentially about the power of social media and all of our Zoom calls that we now do, um, you know, now that we're all working remotely and whatnot. So thank you for that one, Dr. Donish. And um, Italy banned cruise liners in the Venice Lagoon from August 1st, and they defend its ecosystem and heritage, moving to end years of hesitation and putting the demands of residents and cultural bodies above those of the tourist industry. And that, no doubt, was a, is a huge debate for the citizens of Venice, which that city is just overcome with tourists. And uh, they want to get rid of the cruise ships and a lot of the tourists. So they're making progress there. Singapore team finds drug cocktail effective against COVID-19 Delta from Cheryl from the Straight Times. The platform named Identif.ai uh, has identified anti antiviral drug Remdesivir together with Lopinavir and Rotinavir, which are drugs used to treat patients with HIV, which seem effective against COVID-19. And then what else do we got here? Uh, Renault locks in lithium supply from Vulcan Energy in a five-year deal from Reuters. And thank you to Anita for that one. Tokyo Games organizers are conducting an investigation after athletes were found drinking alcohol in the Olympic Village last week, violating measures to prevent the spread of COVID-19. There was also another story about two um, athletes from Georgia, the country, not the state who snuck out of the village to, to go sightseeing, which is a direct violation of the Olympic rules. Is it not, Cheryl? Let's see. Yes. Yes. There you go. That was it. I, I couldn't unmute. I'm That's sorry. That's all right. And uh, Tokyo Game organizers are conducting an investigation after athletes were found drinking alcohol in the Olympic Village last week, which is a violation. Amazon is running out of storage space and manpower is the headline uh, from Evan that I just retweeted. Well, what do they mean? Well, it says um, there were weeks last year when Amazon, the world's largest e-commerce company, turned away stock shipments to its warehouse due to lack of storage space. There were weeks last year when Amazon turned away stock shipments due to lack of storage space and warehouse employees. Seven months through 2021, the company is still in a mad dash to catch up, despite doubling its warehouse and transportation network in the last 18 months and employees and employing as many people as the active personnel in the U.S. Armed Forces. New figures show Amazon is investing in unthinkably vast amounts of square footage for storage uh, of, and shipping of goods. Amazon shares dropped 7% on Friday after the company lowered sales growth estimates, but for many investors, logistics are the bigger concern. An exceedingly tight labor market has forced Amazon to raise wages and throw in signing bonuses just to attract enough staff. Even with one out of every 153 American workers an Amazon employee. Wow. 
and a global workforce of 1.3 million, the labor search persists. Amazon also has a history of breaking open the piggy bank to capture long-term market share, often to the detriment of short-term profit, which confuses every tech journalist who keeps writing stories that Amazon's not profitable. Even though the strategy has earned the firm scores some critics over the course of the company's 27-year history, the money tap isn't about to shut off. Amazon plans to add 517 facilities to the global distribution network in the next several years, according to logistics consultancy MWPVL International. Those will add 176 million square feet, the size of 3,696 American football fields, to the 402 million Amazon already has for fulfillment. So, to re in the la- to recap, Amazon has 402 um, million square feet of of uh, uh, factory space, and they're going to add 3,696 more, about 10x. The size. Oh no, sorry. They're going to. Sorry, no, no, no. They're going to add 176 million square feet, so about half of what they currently have. They're going to add 50% more storage, essentially. So, um, yeah, Amazon. Uh, uh, Tyler, just uh, just contextually yeah. here in the UK, it's kind of more um, something I get involved in. Um, they're um, they're buying up uh, or putting deals out there to buy up the big box stores that go out of business in the outskirts of cities. Right, or they're pretty close to populations. So effectively, you know, you get a big, uh, you know, let's just take home base or something that's shut down or something else. They'll they'll take them, make them dark, and make them little local delivery warehouses. So they have a, a set of hubs uh, locally, and um, eventually they can, and 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 then eventually they can. I mean, for storage, but they can also use it for other things as as uh, cloud everything comes in place. So these, the prices on these, uh, just slightly out of town. Uh, stores that are shutting down at first it's like oh these things are st- shutting down you know they're just gonna you know they look like uh, you know but they're actually becoming valuable now and the prices are you know going up because amazon's getting in there with bids um and i'm sure that's happening in other cities in in europe uh in in these dense markets now so they're just they're out there on the marketplace buying these things up like crazy and think of this Cal's Cal, like as they um as all the supermarkets go out of business in the cities uh, they just are the perfect storage, small storage spaces for deliveries. So, as so, so you can do same day. So you yeah. can do same day. Yeah. Um, and we did this with Argos. That's how we yeah. transformed Argos. If you're in the UK, you saw, you know, I, I was uh, John Walden and I, we basically reconceived of the Argos stores as local warehouses. That's how we did it. And then we basically said we can get this to same day delivery, um, uh, you know, ultimately. So, yeah, yeah. it's the same. Yeah. Because if the goal is to actually receive the goods, right, and not to, and save the time, then it's so much more efficient to have uh, workers uh, or robots who organize the uh, the purchase uh, the purchase situation, and then the delivery is figured out by logistics. But then you don't need to have humans who take so much time walking around supermarkets and and just being confused. So um, yeah, it will be very interesting in the near future. But there's also stats about, uh, you know, Amazon's sales are going down, right? Ever since the pandemic lockdowns have come open in Canada and the U.S., they found that uh, people are actually shopping less. And that was expected. But I'm wondering how long that will last. 
Well, they're shopping less, but they're also shopping maybe less on Amazon, but new, yeah. uh, more on in new avenues like the instant delivery, like uh, buying directly from um, influencers. So it might just be that there's a different, you know, um, different uh, channels that they're spending money in. Yeah, and the other factor there is, uh, and I on those numbers, the grocery shopping was obviously you know big. Uh, over the over the um, pandemic, because uh, at, le- at least um, by by their um, only the growth, you know, the essential retailers are allowed to be open. Right. So a lot of people did buy from the grocery stores, at least in the UK. And then they had a spike. Um, and, and remember, Amazon is just starting on grocery. They're just starting. They're like they're the baby. They're an upstart in grocery. Right. Just don't think about I mean, even the Whole Foods is tiny uh, globally. Globally, Whole Foods is tiny. Right. Um, so Amazon is just getting started on grocery. Just watch that space. They're going to own grocery yep. in my view. Anyway. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Cal. So um, a few interesting headlines just coming in. China reports 75 new COVID cases as Delta cluster expands now into multiple provinces. Um, oh, boy. Uh, Quebec is offering a third dose of mRNA vaccines to residents who want to travel to places that don't currently recognize their vaccination status. Some countries do not consider people with mixed doses or Covishield doses to be fully vaccinated. Haven? Haven? Yeah, no. It's, uh, so the whole point was the AstraZeneca part. Uh, so because of the U.S. especially, uh, they're not recognizing our AstraZeneca. Um, I mean, which the majority of the world does. And in the U.S., I don't know why they still haven't. It's all our emergency use, right? All of their vaccines. I'm sure this is political. Um, but so Canadians who have got AstraZeneca are not being recognized when they go abroad for work, especially in the States. Um, so that's the point of all that. Hmm. Hopefully, Canadian, they said that recently the Canadian government said they were trying to work with the U.S. government to try to get some sort of a, a deal going on, whether they'll allow Canadians to go across. Okay, good. Here's I like this next one from Cheryl um, from DW.com, Dutch fella out of Germany, that Belarus sprinter named Simanuskaya refuses uh, a forced flight home. She was taken to a Tokyo airport against her will by team officials after she criticized coaches. Belarusian officials are denying her version of the events. And um, she's not the only one. The Ukrainian very tall lady who won, I think, the high jump, she also was forced back to the airport uh, to return to Ukraine, if somebody can find that article. And interesting that Eastern Europeans are forcing, which which are... um, And apparently the Japanese Japanese officials actually kind of wanted to offer her asylum, but she kind of like denied and didn't want it because she wanted to be closer to home. So I think she's targeting Germany or Austria. And then you had the soccer player from Myanmar, if I remember correctly, also a lot of... Yes. You have multiple athletes now not wanting to go back to their rather authoritarian countries. So uh, interesting to see that now all happening because, yeah, when they get... But that happens in every Olympics, right? 
every Olympics we have defections uh-huh. or people leaving, right? And this I think might be becoming more prominent because everyone's with all the well, be, international. Be, that'll be really interesting to see if that happens uh, in the twenty two games in Beijing. If anyone, <laughs> maybe not. Hey, they might give, they might give enough digital yuan for them to stay. You never know. Start learning Mandarin now. You can survive there. Why not? I know there's an American in North Korea who who he's the only white actor there for all of their propaganda films. So he plays the president and uh, the American president in all of the North Korean propaganda films. He's had a wonderful career as an actor there in North Korea. There's a whole slew of YouTubers who have been actually being paid by uh, some of the. Uh, we're surmising that they're being paid by the government because they get all this access to some really interesting. Uh, sites and uh, stories. Okay. So uh, next headline is, thank you to Cheryl for the last one. Next one also from Cheryl. Money, cars, and even houses. Uh, Southeast Asian medalists at the Tokyo Olympics are receiving lavish rewards for their uh, accomplishments in addition to a hero's welcome when they return home. So that's kind of the other way to do it here in Southeast Asia. Um and they highlight the uh, Thai lady who won the Taekwondo gold and the Philippines lady um, look like Olympic uh, gymnastics and, and another gentleman. I can't quite tell where he's from. Oh, yeah. The Philippines first gold medalist to receive homes and more. There you go. That's a, that's a different way to do it. And then we've got uh, China's putting pigs in 13-story hog hotels to keep germs out, is the headline from Bloomberg. (laughs) China is taking hog biosecurity to new levels, 13 stories, in fact, where they're now stacking them into multi-story hog hotels, digital hog hotels. Oh, great. Poop drips down. Poop goes downwards, right? Well, that makes it easy. Hopefully there's no holes on the floor. No, there's there's a pipe, you know, in it channels it all down into a bioreactor, you know. And then what else do we got here? We've got from the BBC finding answer to the world's dry, the world's drinking water crisis. Scientists are racing to come up with technologies that can solve the world's clean water shortage. Boy, is there starting to be a this is this article is only 10 hours old. Boy, are we really starting to wake up to this water thing and I told you so. I told you so. I told you so. You're all going to have to move. You know, the sea level rise is going to happen, but you're going to have to move due to a water shortage long before that. In fact, 50 million Muslims from the Middle East are not going to have clean drinking water. They're going to have to move somewhere. And Europe just banned the burqa. So time to play our favorite show, Jeopardy. Where are they going to move? Where is everyone going to be moving to when we start running out of water as we are now doing 40 million people in Southern California are about to run out of water without a doubt. Water is the most abundant resource on earth. Yeah. That's salt water, by the way, BBC after all, it covers 70% of the planet. Yet, despite this, we are facing a looming crisis as a species who wrote this BBC climate change, global conflict, and overpopulation are just some of the factors that are devastating the water supply in many areas of the world. It means that two billion people, one quarter of the human population, are without access to safe drinking water. Is that really a problem, though? Do we really need water? Can't we just, like, eat chocolate bars? I mean, come on. 
As the world's population creeps ever closer to 8 billion, attention is being focused on developing technologies that can help address this before it's too late. It's already too late. <laughs> One of those offering a potential solution is Michael Mirilashvili, head of Watergen, an Israeli-based firm that is using its air-to-water technology to deliver the drinking water to remote areas of the world hit by conflict or climate change. Basic human right, he says, water is a basic human right, and yet millions don't have access to it. Well, how does that make it a basic right? He tells the BBC. Mm, yeah, Mother Nature doesn't actually grant you rights. States do. So I, I, I will happily debate you, sir. Yes. Is is that article half sponsored on it? Like, I'm just yeah, curious. A, I noticed like a lot of these sites have these sponsored articles. It's, now, the, company sponsored. It, it's not list. It doesn't signify that it's sponsored in any way, but it's definitely a, a PR piece. And let's unpack. Yeah. Let's show how the sausage is made here for a second. This very clever um, company, Watergen, and their very handsome founder, Michael Mirilashilavelli, uh, clearly have a PR team that they hired who got them an article in the bbc and through new south wales australia maybe hmm? could they have done it through new south wales reporters like in australia remember the recent article you were talking about before mm, yeah about yeah. information campaigns yeah 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 pulling water out of thin air is his technology and he talks all about it and his latest machines can provide six thousand liters of water a day it has already been used to support an entire hospital in the Gaza Strip and rural villages in Central Africa. And this is not just about saving lives. It's about improving the lives of millions, he adds. Even in developed countries, some people don't drink clean water and it has a direct effect on the health and agriculture. And it's, yeah, essentially one big PR piece for his company. And it talks about desal plants and uh, he and one other one. Energy required for seawater reverse osmosis has been reduced by more than three times in the last decade, and today it consumes four or five times or less energy. What does that mean? Consumes four, five, four to five times less energy than the old thermal processes is what I think they meant to write. So they've even got a bit of typos going on here in this one. But it is not clear if the solutions will be enough. The global water resources grow increasingly scarce. The race is on for scientists to come up with other answers that will have little to no impact on already stressed ecosystems. Exactly. You're not going to figure out a solution for the 40 million people in Southern California in time. It's going to be easier to move. So that's what's going to happen. So, um, yeah, we're not suffering from lack of solutions. There's plenty of solutions out there. It's, we're, we're, it's a, just a fundamental um, lack of uh, willpowers as it is. So that's why nothing's going to change because it's easy to move. It's just, it's, that's just easier. There, the solution is you move. And that's easier than doing the actual work of solving the, you know, the problem. So uh, next article. Uh, doesn't hmm? Go ahead, Messi. No, I, no, I was just going to say that. I, I mean, countries are going to become like protectionists, right? Yes. Like, like anything else that they used to do if everybody starts moving. Correct. So don't you think it's a, a permanent solution is better than maybe trying to move? I don't know. You're right that the country that it's going to become haves and have nots and that's going to lead to wars. And that's it's, and there was an article 48 hours ago about the coming water wars and they outlined where they will be on the Mekong and the Euphrates and the uh, the Nile. 
So it's um, it's it's inevitable. I mean, historians have studied and, and anthropologists know very well how this all plays out. And you'll have civilizations collapse. All, nearly all civilizations that have collapsed over time has been due to lack of resources, most notably water, like the Angkor Wat and, you know, lots of them. Rome is just... Rome was a very complicated one, not not specific to water, but um, a lot of civilizations have fallen due to lack of water. So we're going to start to see places. You you people a thousand years from now. I mean, Southern California is a sort a sort of uh, empire in and of itself, and forty million people who are going to have to that that civilization is going to move. So. Um, how local media spreads misinformation from vaccine skeptics, according to the New York Times. It's a, their version of the big Facebook article that we read uh, when we started the program now. Oh, we just went over. We we started four hours ago, and we're going to be back here four hours from now. So we're going to, boom, take a little pause, take a little nap, little sandwich, little sleep, maybe a massage, maybe run on the beach, who knows. But thank you to everybody for joining us. And we Not everybody is in Thailand. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Thailand. Yeah, we'll thank we'll you. see you all back Take here. In that one day, it's going to go all the way to the 3 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, Cal. All right. We'll wait for you to come. Okay. We're going to wait for you to come back, and we'll do that. See you <laughs> later. We'll get, it. we'll get the Red Bull. Yeah. All right. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, Paul.